Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff Wotelis. This is the Druff and Friends show. This is being broadcast live and recorded on December 12th, 2018. The time right now, 8.34 p.m. Pacific time. I already have Trey Daruski, the co-host, on with me. We're doing things a little bit differently than we used to. Usually I, I pick up the co-host later and... Nope, this time we're starting with a co-host. Uh, Calbot cannot make it tonight. He had a very busy day. He's very tired. It's late. So he claims he's listening in bed. Maybe if we are interesting enough, it will awaken him enough to where he'll want to call in. But uh, I'm, I'm guessing we probably won't hear from him tonight. Brandon Draxel Gerson, you never know. He may call in at some point. Uh, he just had a birthday recently. He's... Uh, Getting older, but uh, still younger than the both of us by uh, a number of years. So, anyway, it's been several weeks since you last heard from me. November 20th was the last show. This is only the fourth show that I've done since I came down with my health problems. I made an announcement last week that the show was going to be returning to regular broadcast and that it would be broadcasting weekly once again. And then, during that week, there was no show. (laughs) That's how it goes around here. But uh, there's a show tonight, Wednesday, which is supposed to be our regular night. And I'm going to try to do shows every week now. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how I feel. Some people erroneously took my proclamation that we're starting shows again to mean that I'm better. And I wish that were the case. I'd be much happier right now if that were the case. It's not the case. I'm not better. What's happened is that I've just had time to kind of determine what I can and can't do, what does and does not harm me, what makes things worse and what doesn't make things worse. And I I decided that radio is not the problem. I've had some tests. I've had uh, some experience with everything now for four months. I figured out that while doing like eight-hour shows probably isn't good for someone who has throat issues, and I'm not going to do that, I don't believe that was the cause, nor do I believe that doing radio is going to worsen my condition. Now, of course, if I do feel lousy during the show, I will have to stop it or at least pause it because, of course, health comes first here, but I'm going to attempt to do this show on a regular basis again. So if you've been missing it, if you're tired of the once a month show type thing we've been doing and you want it to be regular again, then it's probably going to happen barring any setbacks or new discoveries that make me realize I shouldn't be doing this. I do miss doing radio every time on Wednesday night when I was not doing it, it was kind of depressing. And I would sometimes listen to old shows playing on the call to listen line and think, oh, I was healthy then, and it would be sad. I'd I'd wish I could transport myself back to the time when I was doing the show I was listening to. And then I finally thought, look, I I can still do it. I don't have to pretend I'm back in uh, 2017. I, I I can do it. I may not feel the same as I once did, but I can do it. So here I am. I'm doing it. We have a free roll tonight, and uh The most shocking thing to you might be that $100 of the $300 that we're giving away tonight came from me. 
Yes, comes from me, the guy who runs the site at a loss and lets you know about it. The self-proclaimed cheap Jew and bonus whore. Yes, I'm giving $100 away from my Jew wallet into your pocket tonight as part of this free roll. The other 200 comes from a Jew who is not cheap at all, Eric Benzamokin. He gave another 200 which I appreciate very much. So it's a $300 free roll, just like last time, except uh, last time I didn't give anything. And I will break down the prize pool as follows. It starts at 8.45 Pacific time. You have about seven minutes to get in there. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. Take a look at pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll for the rules and information regarding whether or not you qualify for the free money. You need a separate account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, but it's totally free. It does not even require any play chips to enter. The prizes this week, $150 for first, $75 for second, $40 for third, $25 for fourth, and $10 for fifth. We pay five spots. $300 being given away. It's at 8.45. You can keep registering with a full stack all the way up until 9.10 Pacific time, and then you're shut out. Probably not much competition tonight because people kind of got unused to radio being here. So take advantage of it while you can and try to win the money. And if you've donated money recently and haven't seen it given away, I I still have record of it. It's just uh, I, I try not to use too much at once. Otherwise, we come to other weeks and we don't have as much as I'd hope. The reason I'm giving away 100 is because I promised about uh, seven months ago or so that I was going to give away $400 because of unclaimed free roll money that has happened over the years. It wasn't intentional. So Some people really believe this was intentional. Some people think this is a scheme that uh, I ran to secretly make lots of money off of Poker Fraud Alert by holding free rolls. Other people would donate to the free rolls, and then you know certain people wouldn't collect, especially smaller wins, like $8. So uh, over time, I'd collect a bunch of those, and kind of like in Superman 3, all of a sudden I'd have a ton of money. That's not how it works. This was unintentional that it happened. Uh, it's just because it's a pain in the ass to constantly hassle people, hey, I owe you money, you know, get it from me. <laughs> I can't force people to take the money. And, and so I, I'd have them come to me. And if they didn't, uh, they could always claim it. It never expired. But uh, some didn't. And so over time, some probably accumulated. And it was impossible at that point when this was when this issue was raised, it was impossible at that point to figure it out. So I said, okay, I'll just, I'm just going to donate $400 to a future free rolls. But then I didn't do it. The main reason I didn't do it is because I, not too long after that, is when all this health stuff started for me. It wasn't right after, but uh, at first I kind of forgot about it a little bit, then I developed these health issues, and and then uh, we didn't have a free roll for a while. The first free roll for months was uh, last month. So anyway, I'm starting to do it. A hundred of it was this week. So this is going to keep happening. I'm not sure if it'll be every week, but uh, I'm going to get the 400 out pretty quickly through my own donations starting this week. So that's the free roll. Still four minutes to get in. If you need your password reset, tough luck. You got a PM Belly Buster, Belly Space Buster on the forum to get him to do that. Don't do it like minutes before the free roll because it's not going to happen. I, I did it for one person because they happen to be around, but don't PM me now. I'm not going to do it for you. Got to run a show here. The phone number into the show 
is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. As I mentioned on the last show, Skype did a lot of changes. Skype is something that is closely integrated with this show, and Microsoft has ruined Skype, really, really ruined it. And I don't mean ruined like, oh, I just like the old version or I'm just afraid of change. No, they really ruined it to where all the advanced features of Skype have been destroyed, like actually taken out of Skype. I have no idea what they're doing. I think they're trying to make it simpler and cleaner. But they they really now have an inferior product to what they had 10 years ago. They didn't own it 10 years ago, but Skype in 2008 was more advanced and more powerful than the 2018 version. You may say, okay, then use the 2008 version. I can't. They've also prevented you, as of November 1st, from using old versions. If you try, it will not connect. So I'm stuck. I I spent hours a few days ago looking for alternatives to Skype that can work with this show. I even tried Google Hangouts. Uh, These are not working in the way I need them to work. Uh, Unfortunately, there's just not a lot of demand these days for applications where you can take multiple phone calls at once, both incoming and outgoing, and bridge them all together. That's just not... Uh, uh, there's some where you can set it all up and do it all outgoing, but to have to have an app or a program that can do what we need here, it's just it's not easy to find. So I'm still looking to see if I can find a solution. But in the meantime, I built my own solution. So I'm still using Skype, but I'm, I'm doing some funny trick with my cell phone in order to be able to take calls. So you're still going to call the main phone number, the 775-372-8355. I hate to tell you, but the Mount Charleston line is not going to work tonight. My beloved Mount Charleston line uh, cannot work with this whole little setup I did. So only the main number will work tonight, 775-372-8355. It's a little harder for me to see the calls. Basically, I have to see the calls uh, through my cell phone, even though you're not calling my cell phone, and I have to pull a little trick on my cell phone to bridge it all together. It's a big pain in the ass, but it's the only way I can take incoming calls tonight because of how screwed up Skype is. Now, if I got rid of Trader Risky, I could take incoming calls one at a time, but I I don't want to do that. I want to have Trader Risky here. So we're doing it this way, and maybe in the meantime I can finally figure out a solution to this uh, Skype disaster, which is really what it is. Poker Fraud Alert is going to have some downtime this week. So if you try to connect to Poker Fraud Alert, or even if you try to listen to the show in the archives, then there's some failure later this week, like a can't connect failure. It does not mean that you're banned. It doesn't mean that I blocked you. It doesn't mean that uh, you're having internet problems. Poker Fraud Alert is moving to a new server. That time has come again. What happens is that over time, the server Poker Fraud Alert is running on becomes obsolete. And for the same or less money, in this case a little bit more money, but pretty close, pretty comparable, I can get something much better, which is more powerful, which will perform better. So I have to do it every so often. Is it a big pain in the ass? Yes. Does it cause some connectivity problems for the first few days when you try to connect to the site? Yes. Uh, But do I have to do this every so often so the site runs well? Yes. So uh, the site may be hard to reach. Here's an alternate way to get to it. 
if that's happening, pokerfraud.com, not poker fraud alert, but pokerfraud.com uh, will probably be the first thing that will work, and then everything else will follow. Even my Vegas Casino Talk forum will be affected by this because it's running on the same server. But just be patient and, and wait a few days. If there's any further trouble, just uh, text me at 775-372-8355 and I'll try to help you along to get back into the site. But it should resolve itself for everybody soon enough. But the, this should probably start uh, late this week or early next week. And yeah, I'm just basically moving the whole thing to a new server and it should perform faster and better and you know, it needs to be done. The equipment it's running on is old. I mentioned on the last show that I was going to start treating H. pylori, which is a stomach bacterial infection that a lot of you have. It's estimated half the world population has it, but most people don't have symptoms from it. It's most known to cause ulcers. Also, it can cause stomach cancer, but that's not all that common, but uh, it has a big hand in causing stomach cancer. The problem is that while you can treat it, the treatment is very, very, very tough. And it's tougher for some people than others. Uh, I tried the very first part of this treatment and got some really bad side effects and said, I can't do this for two weeks. One day I could have toughed it out. But but uh, I didn't even do the hard part yet. I did the easy part, which for me was very hard. Just for whatever reason, I have a very hard time with the medications known as PPIs, which are things like Prilosec, uh, Nexium, stuff like that. So that's supposed to be the easy part. I tried that as a test, and I had loads of side effects that were pretty severe. So I didn't even get to the high-dose antibiotics that tend to make uh, about two-thirds of the people who treat it really, really, really sick. Some the sickest they've ever been in their life for two weeks. So I decided to abort, and uh, I'm exploring some uh, natural, not really natural, but uh, treatment with supplements, which normally I think that type of stuff is BS, but in this case, uh, there's actually some legitimate clinical studies that have proven that uh, these work, not as well as the antibiotics, but that these work with lesser side effects, lesser reactions, though I was starting that the other day and <laughs> I had some problems too. So I'm trying I'm trying to get the right combination of supplements that will be effective yet uh, not make me miserable, because if I'm going to be miserable, I might as well just do the antibiotics. So I'm still trying to figure all this out. So I would have been done by now otherwise. In fact, if I could have just jumped in time, I would have done it. I would have just jumped from November 20th to today and not having experienced all that. Like, if I could just do it, but then jump forward in time and not really experience it, I would have done it, but can't do that. So I haven't done it yet. Those are that's two items of uh, quick news here. The call to listen line should work. It's now located in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It does not require the internet, does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require a computer, and it won't use any of your data. If you have a data plan, it's not going to use one byte of your data. And there is never, ever, positively, never any buffering. The worst part about listening to podcasts 
and streaming content on the internet is the buffering. You're into it, you're enjoying it, and then it just freezes and it stops. And it's unnerving, it's jarring. And you're waiting and waiting, and you're seeing this thing spinning, and you're waiting for it to reconnect, and you're going, come on, come on, I want to hear the rest of this. Well, I hate that so much that I said, we're not going to have that. There's not going to be buffering. The call to listen line never buffers. It's a no-buffer guarantee. 605-313-0736 is the number. 605-313-0736. You call it, you listen. With any phone in the world, that can dial. 605-313-0736. And you just listen. Never buffers. It just works. It's a lovely thing. And when we're not live on the air, then it picks one of our many reruns that we've done over the almost seven years of Poker for Other Radio. Yes, almost seven years. And runs them as if they're live. And then when that's over, it picks the next. And when that's over, it picks the next, etc., etc., etc. If you forget these phone numbers, by the way, all you have to do is go to the main radio page on PokerFraudAlert.com, and you can see them all there. Don't forget we have a chat room. You need a flash-enabled device, meaning it won't work on iPhones or iPads, but we do have a chat room that you can chat in during the live show. I don't read it very often, but it's there. And you can chat with the other listeners. Sometimes I will read it. Sometimes I will steal jokes you make in there and... Pretend like it came from me. Pretend like I've said something witty. And no one will ever know. Except for the few people in the chat room. It's a good trick. Uh, looking at the chat room right now. Let's see. Uh, the, I Am Greek is trying to say that I should... Uh, oh no, I don't even know if they're talking about me or them. They're talking about vape pens... People have been trying to convince me to, to to smoke pot and all these other things. It's like, no, I'm not. First of all, uh, THC, which uh, you know, is, is in marijuana, that's known to make anxiety worse, and that's the last thing I need. I know there's some who are saying there are some strains which uh, can actually lower anxiety. I, I'm not ready to do anything like that. Now, let's say I knew that smoking marijuana would, would cure every problem I have. Would I do it? Of course I would. But uh, I don't think it would. In fact, I think there's some chance it could make things worse. Anxiety-wise, I'm not as bad as I was at the beginning. That's the thing that's improved the most, is that my anxiety, I'd say I've gotten that down about 75%. It's not totally gone. I still have some problems, but uh, it's nothing like it used to be. So that's that's the good thing here. The the LPR, the H pylori, that that stuff is is still here just as much as ever. See, SA twenty four says it would help the vast majority of my problems. That, that's not true. It wouldn't. It would not help the the LPR. So, regarding phone calls, I saw one just came in. Uh, be patient if you're trying to call. I, I it's hard for me to see a call coming in. I have to actually be kind of looking at my cell phone. I'm going to put this in better view so I can see it better. Uh, then. Uh, try to call at a convenient time. Don't call right now because we're going to start the show. But kind of between topics you can call in. Or if you're calling about the topic we're discussing. But don't call during a topic and then I answer and you want to talk about something else. I'm just going to hang up on you if you do that. SA24 is saying, he doesn't get it, he'd rather suffer. Uh, You've got to... 
have some kind of logic as to how it's going to help. You can't just say it's going to help. You, you have to understand the conditions I have and then know why they will help me. So. Now, see, this is... You hear that? Terrible. Um, don't call the Mount Charleston line. Uh, because uh, that... We will do that. You'll hear this stupid Skype incoming thing, and I can't take your call. So don't do it. Uh, Sot24 saying it helps people who can't sleep and have depression and anxiety. The reason I, I have problems sleeping is not insomnia. It's because of a choking sensation I get, and mostly from my throat being dry. And uh, as I said, the anxiety and depression I've, I've gotten... The depression I've almost completely gotten under control. The anxiety I've gotten like seventy five percent. All right, let's let's go on here. Let's go on and and start the show. So, Trader Ruski, how many times have you played a World Series of Poker ring event, a, cir- a circuit event to, to win a ring? I have not played one. Okay, you've never played. I haven't played many. I have played about. Uh, Three lifetime, I believe. It was two before, now three. Uh, I, I, I believe the only two I'd ever played were both at Harris Rincon. One was kind of a small, no limit the tournament. The other one, which I think was the first one I ever played, this was a heartbreaker. It was a $5,000 buy-in. Uh, it was in 2007. And I was misled by people at Commerce to believe that there was some other big tournament going on at the same time. And therefore, the Rincon 5K main event there was going to be pretty soft because it would mostly be recreational players because the pros are all going to be at such and such other event. Well, I got there. That was totally not true. It was a very tough event with a very tough field, like uh, probably one of the toughest fields I've ever played in. <laughs> so anyway, I, I did well, though. Uh, I, I didn't start off that well. Uh, but it all started, I, I put a, a bad beat all in on Annie Duke with like ace-seven against ace-queen all in. A very standard thing, like I shoved the ace-seven and she isolated me with the ace-queen and I flopped a seven and beat her. And she berated me for it. Like, like why why would you ever do that? Why would you berate someone who's a short stack and is shoving in with ace-seven and you happen to have the better ace and they win? I mean, that's, that's so standard, but yeah, that's standard Annie too. Uh, that was my first like live encounter with Annie ever, or live issue with her. I, I had played with her before, but we didn't have any words before that. Anyway, that wasn't what I was going to talk about, though. At the point of the event, they were paying 18 spots of a minimum of $11,000. And there were 23 people left, and I was still in on day two. And I flopped a flush, a nine-high flush with nine-eight suited. And I was against... Two opponents, Shane Schlager and Gavin Smith. As I said, this is a tough tournament. So uh, they they checked to me. I was on the button. They checked to me, and uh, I bet, and they both called. The turn was an off-suited card that uh, would have made a straight, which, of course, would only be good for me because I flopped the flush. And they both checked to me again. So I, I went all in. I didn't 
have that many chips. I wasn't super short, but if, if this is the point to go all in in case they're chasing the ace of diamonds, the king of diamonds, in case someone made the straight, in case someone has a set. You know, th- this is it. They they both called the flop. Now it's uh, it's, it's time to shove it in and either win the pot or uh, or win something big. So I'm expecting them to both tank, maybe both fold, maybe one tank call and the other one fold. Uh, I was expecting something like that. Snap call, snap call. Like what the? They turn it over. Both had flushes. Flush over flush over flush that flop. Never before seen that in my life. Never have seen it since. Ever. I've never seen it with a hand involving me. I've never seen it with a hand involving anyone in any poker game that I have played or watched. Trader Risk, have you ever seen flush over flush over flush on the flop and hold them? I was just trying to think about that as you told the story, and I can't say I have. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, of all times to happen, though, it's a $5,000 buy in tournament near the bubble. And, and it's flush over flush over flush, and I'm, of course, uh, the, the worst of the flushes. And I was the only one to bust because uh, Shane had the biggest stack, and Gavin had the biggest hand. So Shane survived, Gavin uh, tripled up. He was the shortest stack coming into it, and I, uh, I busted. I couldn't believe it. I was standing there just in shock. So that was my first circuit event. My second one was another one at the Rincon, which uh, was unspectacular as a smaller buy-in, and I think I was just there anyway and played it. But then my third one was uh, just a few days ago. My third one was at the bike. And I thought, hey, you know, it'll be cool to win a World Series of Poker ring. I guess the marketing's working on me because if this was just a regular... This was an 08 tournament, Omaha 8 or better, and it was only a $400 buy-in. So usually I don't waste my time with those. It's just you're, you're putting in too much time and the chances you're either going to bust or win very little money. So it just it's just not worth it to me. But uh, it, it was the fact that it's a ring event that pushed me over the edge to do it. And I, I don't live very close to the bike. I had to drive over 50 miles, and I had to deal with traffic. So a, a number of things would suggest that I would not want to do it, but I, I decided to do it. So I got out to a very good start. I ended up right next to Alan Kessler, by the way. <laughs> but uh, I got to a very good start. You start with 15K in chips. This is a limit event, by the way. I ran it up to 53K, and I, I, I had to be the chip leader at that point. But you know how these events go, these smaller buy-in events. The structure's not very good, and the levels are only half an hour. So things can change very quickly, and they did. And I hit my high of 53K, then I went into a slump and just wasn't winning any hands. Either would lose or chop. And uh, eventually I got uh, below average in chips. I was never super short. Then I was kind of spinning my wheels around average for a while, but uh, bottom line is I kept surviving and got all the way down to the final 10. Now, 90 people entered, and they were paying nine spots. Through some sort of weird payout structure decision-making they had there, it had 91 people entered, they would have paid 12 spots. <laughs> So, so one more person entering would have changed it from 9 to 12 spots paying. Really weird. 
But there was exactly 90, so they only paid nine spots, which meant uh, one person making the final table, because they combine into ten to a final table, would not get paid. And then the final nine all get paid. But the ninth place only gets $945, so it's not exactly a huge payday. And the the the, the winner only got like 9600 so it was not going to be a huge score no matter what happened, but it would be cool to get a ring, and uh, of course $9,600 would have been nice too. With the final 10, there is, there is no really big stack. There is one short stack, not tiny, but short. And I was a little bit below average. I was close to average. I had 112. So I was a little bit below average with, uh, with 10 left. I think average was like uh, 136 or something. So I ended up being the bubble boy. Speaking of flush over flush, that's what happened to me. Uh, the same guy to my direct left flopped a higher flush twice on me in a short time. Which I know happens more often in Omaha than, than Hold'em, but still, it was crappy. And uh, one of the times I got a low... And got half the pot, but uh, the other time I lost outright there. And then the final hand, talk about, uh, this is one of the cases in tournaments where you know for sure, not just you think you are, you know for sure you're beat and you put the money in anyway. And that was because the I was very short stacked and the board came, I was in the blind, it, it was limped, so it checked around and then... Uh, the board was jack nine eight, and I had eight nine ten jack in my hand. So, obviously, with very few chips left, the money was going in. But uh, two tight players gave me action. One of whom was a Seinfeld psychologist, not his real psychologist, but the woman who played his psychologist on the show a few times. Her name is Gina Hecht. You can look her up. H e c H.T., Gina Hecht. She was uh, on a number of uh, sitcoms in the 90s as a guest, but uh, she's best known for being the psychologist that uh, Seinfeld went to. Anyway, she was really tight and straightforward, so when she was putting in a ton of action on the flop, I knew for sure she had Queen-10. And I thought there was a decent chance the other guy had Queen-10 because he was very tight and cautious, too. Well, I was right. They did both have Queen-10. So... I needed either another queen to chop or another uh, jack or nine or eight to win. So I had to put it in, given that my chip stack, even knowing I was against the straight, because I, I had all, th- first I hardly had any chips, and second I had all three of the cards on the board. So a jack, an eight, or a nine would have all won it for me and tripled me up and uh, did not get them. And that was that for me. So, I spent 11 hours there, all for nothing. What's very frustrating is that when you have around average chips in a structure like this with 10 people left, you have a very decent shot at winning it. It's really anyone's game at that at that point. It's just who, whoever happens to get the best cards. So, uh, the winner is Frankie O'Dell, who has some other tournament accomplishments. I think he even has two bracelets. Uh, but uh, the second place person was uh, was Seinfeld psychologist, Gina Hecht. 
So she just caught the cards. In Omaha, it's in 08, it's just whoever catches cards will win if the structure isn't very good. If it's at that point, it's just really who's going to get the cards there. And I, I was the one who didn't get the cards. I was the one who got the losing cards. So I was really frustrated, and I walked outside, and it's raining, which was just so fitting because the rain was supposed to be gone. So it's raining on me as I walk uh, to my car. It's like a weird storm that's kind of hung out in L.A. a lot longer than it should have. So I went to go get gas. He's almost out of gas. I get some gas there in the ghetto where the bike is located. And then I drove the three more miles to Commerce. And I saw a short 100-200 limit hold'em game going. And it was late and I was uh, a little bit tired. And I said, do I really want to do this? Do I want to compound my my frustration with now sitting in a game that's going to have a lot of variance, a, a shorthanded, like if I was going to be the fourth player in there. I'd be the fourth player in, uh, or sorry, it'd be the fifth player. There's four play- people already. I'd be the fifth player in a 100-200 limit hold'em game. That could induce all kinds of swings. What if I get beat down there? That'll be the one-two punch of frustration. So I threw caution to the wind and played it anyway. Trader Risky, what is your guess? Do you think I, I won around broke even or lost in that game? I don't know. I was hoping we'd have a good win story, but it's not sounding like it. Well, you're actually wrong. I won, I won $3,300. So that, $13? That, no, 3300 Oh, 3300 yeah, yeah, Nice. Yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, and the game broke pretty fast. So overall, the whole uh, trip down there was worth it, but uh, not in the way I expected. But I was still kind of frustrated in a way. I was still like, no, I wanted that ring. No, I, 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 still, I played, yes, I did well in the short time I played cash at Commerce, but I spent 11 hours for nothing on this stupid tournament at, uh, in 08. This was the first time in a long time that I had played with Alan Kessler. He's really just a, a tournament player for the most part, and I don't play that many tournaments. But uh, he, he was really pissing a lot of people off at the table. Uh, some was not his fault and some was, that's, that's the way I'd say it. Um, he'd make a lot of comments on the way people would play hands and that would get them mad. And I never do that. I I never make comments about, uh, people's play. Uh, the only time I make a comment is like someone does a slow roll to me or something like that. But, uh, other than that, I don't really comment on the way people play, but, but he was, and was getting people angry. Uh, there was one guy who angle shot Kessler and Kessler got really mad about this and kept calling the guy a cheater and they got in a big argument there. It was like a, an older foreign guy. I, I think he's... Uh, I couldn't tell what he was. Uh, he may have been Middle Eastern, whatever. He he pulled an angle in that uh, Kessler was reaching for chips to bet the river and the guy said, I call. So the reason that's an angle, for the reason, for the, yeah, for those of you that don't know, the reason that's an angle is because it's not binding. Because Kessler hasn't actually bet yet, so he's not calling anything. So this way he can watch Kessler's reaction if he would still bet, knowing the guy's going to call. And and this way, if uh, Kessler thinks the guy's calling and is bluffing, then he'd probably check at that point, and then this guy could uh, could run him off the hand. So uh, 
that's what that, so Kessler that's a way to determine whether Kessler's final bet on the river is a bluff. If the guy says I call before Kessler makes it and then sees what Kessler does. So Kessler got really mad. He was right. He was right that the guy was angle shooting. Uh, I ended up crippling that guy later after Kessler busted. So I told Kessler that. He asked me how that guy did. I said, well, actually, that guy, uh, I crippled him. And the guy actually made it all the way down to like the final 13, but uh, he had a short stack the whole way, thanks to me, because we just had a kind of a cooler hand where uh, I flopped what looked like a very big draw, and then uh, he had a set, and uh, well, actually, I did have a big draw. He had a set, and, and, I, and I beat him. And the guy just could not stop complaining about it the whole time, too, that I scooped the pot. Anyway... I just can't can't cash at these damn. Uh, I always have the heartbreak, the, the near the bubble heartbreak with these ring events. Two out of three times it's happened. One on the absolute bubble, one with flush over flush over flush on the flop. Five from the bubble. At least this one was smaller though, much smaller. So that that was my experience. I'm not going to be chasing rings, but I might play one of these again at some point. The Commerce LA Poker Classic is coming up. Oh, this is kind of funny. Uh, Kessler and Matt Savage have had a long-standing feud. Matt Savage being a, a tournament director, and uh, he is the director of the LA Poker Classic at, at Commerce. Well, Kessler was bringing to me an exclusive telling me that the LA Poker Classic, he thinks, he's not sure, but he thinks the LA Poker Classic has been canceled. And this has been going on for many, many years. This is uh, one of the originals as far as uh, big tournaments that uh, outside of the World Series of Poker. So then there was some discussion about it, and Kessler was saying that they deleted the schedule and that the WPT has nothing on their website about it, and uh, he found a 404 not found page, and so he was... And then he said that uh, they won't comment on it when asked about it at the WPT. So I thought maybe he was onto something. But uh, Frankie O'Dell, who won the event, uh, he was sitting at a table right behind ours, so he heard Kessler talking about it, and uh, he actually took it upon himself to message Matt Savage while we were all at the table. And Savage said back, tell Alan to stop ruining my event. Tell him to stop saying we're not having the event. I'm putting the schedule together right now. Tell him to stop spreading false information. <laughs> so, so much for that hot piece of gossip there. And sure enough, uh, not too long after that, the schedule was released, so there will be an LA Poker Classic, and it is still going to be a WPT event. I thought that maybe they were having some contractual issues with WPT, and that maybe the WPT part was going to be dropped. And I, that's still possible that's what was happening, because they were acting a little bit funny about the whole thing, but whatever, if there was something, it's been resolved, because it's going to go on as normal. So I, I may play a few of those, but you never know. By the way, a forum poster, I don't know if he listens to the radio show, Bootsy Collins revealed in the thread that I wrote about uh, this bike uh, ring event I played that a few weeks prior to that that we pissed side by side uh, in a urinal but he didn't say anything to me 
So it, it must have been when I was at Commerce in mid-November. But uh, I'll tell you, if, if anybody here is, is pissing next to me, you're, you're welcome to say something. You're welcome to say who you are on the forum or you listen to the show. I'm, it, it's not going to be weird to me that while we're pissing together you, that you tell me who you are. Uh, you know, don't don't uh, don't look over to my urinal and and uh, try to stare at me pissing. But you know, if if you want to identify yourself, you're welcome to. I always find it weird when people have some kind of close encounter with me like that, and then say nothing, and then later let me know. Like I've had people I've played with at the same table before, and then later they text me, "Oh, you know, I was at that table with you yesterday." And I'm like, "Well, why didn't you say something?" So. Just say something if you see me. It's fine. Even if we're pissing. Uh, JSTAT saying in chat, Shooting Star was canceled this year. WPT won't run it next year, possibly. Interesting. That's in Northern California. I'm looking at the rest of the chat. There's a lot of talk about drugs in there. A lot of drug talk. (laughs) All right. That was my experience trying to win a ring. Now let's get away from the dandruff topics and talk about something totally unrelated to me, but I'm sure right now is the biggest story having to do with poker. And that is one of the most infamous prop bets in recent times. One that really made some people think. One that really uh, scared some people and made them feel concerned for one of the people in the event. So this is the prop bet for $100,000 that took place on uh, November 22nd between two Bellagio regulars, one named Rich Alati and the other one named Rory Young. I didn't really know who either of these guys were, but I guess they're regulars at Bellagio. And a few months ago, they had a discussion of how long a person could take being confined in a dark room with no light source, no entertainment, nothing. Just just a dark room, food, uh, access to a shower, a toilet, a sink... But no windows, no human interaction, no electronics, no light of any kind. The whole thing is pitch dark. How long could a human take that? And they talked about it. Well, this eventually morphed into a prop bet where Rich Alati claimed that he could go 30 days under those conditions and not bail out. And they made a prop bet for $100,000. So if Alati could get through the 30 days without uh, violating any of the terms and without bailing out of it, then he would receive $100,000 from Rory Young. If Alati either broke the rules or bailed out at any point, then Young would win the $100,000. This was first reported on by uh, Daniel Anderson 
she's a regular player there, so she heard about it. And then this quickly spread in the poker world, and everyone was talking about it because there's kind of there's all kinds of weird prop bets that people have made over the years. There was even one many years ago where one guy bet another that uh, one guy offered another a hundred thousand dollars to get plastic surgery, get breast implants, and keep the breasts for a year. And and the guy took it and actually uh, did it. He actually got the plastic surgery, had breasts, and kept the breasts for a year. And I, th- I think he even kept the breasts after the year were over. <laughs> he decided to let, leave them in there, which is the strangest part. But it, there's been a lot of weird prop bets over the years between poker players. And this happens just because poker is, is, is kind of a... It's associated with gambling and and the whole degenerate culture and, and and the there's they always try to find ways to make things more interesting and it always involves money and people betting each other things so that's that's some people do a lot more prop bets than others i I don't really do them but this was one of the more concerning ones in that people thought that this was dangerous. On the surface, you may say, oh, well, what's the big deal? He has plenty of food. He has a refrigerator. No light in the refrigerator, but he has a, a, a refrigerator. He has plenty of food. I think food even gets delivered every so often, but he has to, like, go to the corner of the room and not communicate while this is going on. Uh, he can shower as much as he needs. There's a bathtub. There's uh, water. You know, he has changes of clothes, so... It seems that he would have all the elements to survive. Of course, this is a bathroom that he's living in, but it's, it's a large bathroom of some sort. Whatever it is, there's, there's enough for him to survive. So while that wouldn't be pleasant, you know, why couldn't you just do that for 30 days and just kind of be bored in there? Well, it's because the human brain requires interaction. It requires stimulation. And this is known as sensory deprivation, and it's, it's a form of torture. Now, the full sensory deprivation would be if you couldn't see, you couldn't hear, uh, you couldn't feel, you couldn't smell, and you couldn't taste. If you just everything was uh, shut off. Uh, the only real way there could be like a full sensory deprivation is if you're just uh, if you're put in some kind of suit. And like left floating in the water where you have air, but that's it. And of course, eventually you'd have to eat and drink. So you, you couldn't do that for a month. But that would be the full sensory deprivation. And I think you'd go crazy pretty fast with that. Uh, this would be, this sensory deprivation is light. Where you just can't, basically can't see anything. But it's also interaction. It's also mental stimulation. Now, let's say he could have a phone in there. He had to sit in the dark, but he had to, he had a, a smartphone he could use. Then it would be much, 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 much easier because he could occupy himself for that month being on the smartphone and interact with people through the smartphone. Even if he couldn't interact, let's say there was no internet. He just had to be on a smartphone 
with no access to the outside. Well, he could still play games. He could still uh, read books that he downloaded to there. He could still do things to keep his mind active. Also, the phone would generate some light. But he actually has nothing there. And it's dark and there's nothing he can do. Someone said the only thing he can really do there is jerk off. And I guess that's kind of true. (laughs) What else can you do in there? So you're really sitting there with no stimulation, no social interaction, and no light for 30 days, which is a very long period of time. People were afraid of a few things happening to him. They were afraid that his eyes would get damaged because of 30 straight days in the pitch darkness, that once he was exposed to light, his eyes would not be able to adjust anymore. And people were afraid that he would just go crazy and that this would cause lasting psychological damage or maybe that he'd come out just completely insane. A lot of people thought that he wouldn't make it, that he would just bail out at some point and say, this is too much. So people were very fascinated with this whole thing, but also a little bit concerned and also wondering if these prop bets are going too far. Under the terms of the bet, he could have any food that he wanted. But the food would be delivered uh, sometime in a three to six day interval. And I'll explain that in a second, why it's not an interval that would be something that uh, would be regular. And that's because he had no way to tell the passage of time. He could not bring a watch there. He couldn't bring any kind of timepiece to show him how long he's been in there. And that was thought to be one of the more difficult things about this bet was that he can't even see his progress and mentally pace himself to get through this. And with no ability to figure out how long you've been in there, at some point, you know, maybe you'll think you've been in there for 18 days and it's really only been six days. You don't know. Now, you can, I guess you can somewhat keep track of it by your sleeping, because he, he had a bed in there. So I guess you know how much you can sleep per 24 hours, and you can kind of keep track by that, but uh, you'll still lose track. So the food would be delivered from three to six day intervals. He was also not allowed to have any kind of drugs or alcohol in there. So this way he would have to endure this in a fully alert mental state. He could not leave the room at any time for any reason. The exact location of this was never disclosed. It was a bathroom somewhere in Las Vegas. There were no light sources. Light was not coming in from anywhere. His parents were very concerned. His father said in an interview that he was very worried for his son, that he had tried to talk his son out of doing this, but his son wouldn't listen. At the time that this was being discussed, I was very surprised that someone would be willing to do this for only $100,000. Now, $100,000 may sound like a lot on the surface, but if you think about it, it's really not life-changing money. 
$100,000 these days is just not going to go very far. It's not like he's going to get so much money to where now he's set for life. This is something that, uh, yeah, if he budgets well, he can live for a few years, but, uh, that, but that's it. And if he's a poker player and he's playing decent stakes, you would think it would just be worth it for him to just play more hours poker to make more money rather than do this. It's not clear if uh, Alati really needed the money, but remember, he had $100,000 to potentially lose on this, so he had at least 100 k to his name. It's not like this was a challenge. This was actually a bet. So if the guy had 100 k to his name, then why put himself through this? But he did. So... This went for a while, and uh, there wasn't much news as far as the progress, except nobody was hearing any news that Alati had dropped out. Now, there was a rumor that he was on the board for a 5-5 PLO game at Bellagio, which would mean he was out, but uh, that turned out to be a false rumor. I heard from someone that knew the family that the bet was still going on, and that's where I was given the exact date of November 22nd. They had never announced the exact starting date, but I was told that privately, and I was told that it was still in progress, that the bet was still going on, that Alati had not given up yet. Uh, Finally, there was some movement in the whole thing. On day number 20, which was just a few days ago, uh, Rory Young came into the room to perform a food delivery. So I guess it was Young who was going to be doing the food deliveries. He came into the room to perform the food delivery And at this point, uh, he was kind of nervous because they were up to day 20 and Alati had survived. He didn't know it was day 20, but he had to know it was a while. So at this point, Rory Young said, look, how about you just end this early and I'll give you $25,000. And Alati said no. And in fact, Alati seemed to be in good spirits and said, no, I'm fine. I'm I'm doing okay here. I'm going to tough it out. And he didn't know it was day 20, correct? No, he didn't know. Well, I'll get to that. But uh, he wasn't told it was day 20. So they had a little negotiation. And they finally came to the figure of 62400 to end the bet. So they agreed to that. And then Elati was allowed to leave. And he seemed fine. He didn't seem to be suffering any effects. Now... He did mention that he knew that it was day 20 because he was able to hear some faint sounds outside that uh, where people were landscaping nearby and that it was occurring every day. So, and it was occurring around the same time every day. So by hearing those landscaping sounds, uh, he could, he knew a full day had passed. 
when those would start up again. So he actually knew it was day 20, thanks to that. Very faint, he said, but he could hear the sounds and and figured out this was uh, the sign a full day had just passed. So that, that helped him somewhat. And that wasn't against the rules. He just got lucky that those sounds were audible. What about eye damage? He was still in there for 20 days. Were his eyes okay? Yes. Uh, believe it or not, there was not any risk to his eyes. According to Diana Seldomridge, who is a member of the American Academy of Ophthalmology, she's a doctor, she told Pocket Fives in an interview, there's really no risk to his eyes. The eye is a really, really interesting organ, and it has both light-adapted and dark-adapted states. There's no danger to his eye, but he may just be a teeny light, teeny bit light-sensitive as his eyes readjust to go back to the light. Now, regarding the mental health impacts that this could have had on him, and, and by the way, notice that... Uh, if you look this up, the United Nations condemned the use of solitary confinement as punishment. And this is worse than solitary. This is dark solitary. But um, experts there told Pocket Fives that this probably won't even be the case here because there's a big difference. The big difference is that Alati was not imprisoned. He went in there voluntarily and knew that at any time he could leave. So psychologically, that is much, much easier to deal with than when you have been forcefully imprisoned and put into a solitary confinement. So here he just, he knew it could be over any time. He knew he did this himself. He knew there was a prize involved. And he knew if it got too difficult, he could walk out. And that that by itself was enough to keep him sane. Now, I'm not saying that everybody could do this and come out okay. A lot of people couldn't. But he was able to. I even wonder if he tested this himself prior to making this bet and realized it wasn't that bad. This is the sort of thing that you'd think if you did this for about like two days as a test and you found it was easy that you could figure you could make 30. Yes, I know 30 is way longer than two, but if you can breeze through the two days with no issues, then you might be able to say, okay, I bet I could make this for uh, a month. Whereas if you're already starting to struggle after two days, then you know that uh, not to do this. So it's possible he did this before agreeing to the bet. I don't know who proposed the bet, whether it's him or Young, but it, and I don't know if he snap accepted or if he thought about it, and during the time he thought about it, if he tested it himself. That would be a good way to either make the bet with an edge or not make it at all if you realize you won't be able to do it. But whatever the case, he, he got through two-thirds of it. Now, there's some suspicion from people And it is only suspicion. People do not have any evidence of this, from what I know. That perhaps ending it early, and this $62,400 payment, was a manipulation because of side bets that were made. 
So what if side bets were made with these two? What if some people bet Rory Rory Young the you know that uh Alotti's gonna make it, and what if some people bet Alotti that uh he couldn't make it? And what if there were more side bets on the no side? Well provided that there was no buyout option, provided that the side bet would still be valid, given that they bought out at 20 days, then the no side, that the, 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 he wouldn't make it, would actually win. So what if Young took more side bets than a lot he did? What if he took a lot more, and what if they figured out that 62400 was the amount of money that Young could pay Alati and both of them would walk out ahead. So there is that suspicion. However, I have to think that any side bet here probably would just be declared void. Because day 20 is kind of in the middle. And they voluntarily chose to end it. So it's true he didn't make all 30 days, but he didn't make all 30 days because he was offered 62000 instead of 100000 to end it there. So he was kind of bribed out of continuing. So I can't really say either side would win a side bet here. If I were arbitrating this, I would say that all side bets are just void as if they never occurred. So I'm guessing that that's probably what happened with the side bets and therefore, the suspicions that they're manipulating something with the side bets, probably they're unfounded. Now, Trey Risky, had you heard about this before uh, I just told the story? This is the first I've heard of it. Oh, it's the first you've heard of it. Okay, you, I guess you're not, uh, you're not following yeah, the poker. Yeah, I've, I've been Ted's dad, I've been busy the okay. last few weeks. <laughs> this, is, this is the biggest story in poker the last few weeks, so... Yeah, so that's uh, now. I, I guess you already know, but what would you have guessed beforehand? Would you thought he could have done it or, or not done it? I don't know. I was thinking too before you said it that he must have tried it out because that's just hard to imagine. Thirty days without anything. It is. Um, I don't know. I would have guessed. I, I, I can't imagine doing that. I even got a little bit of. Uh, personal uh, feelings from this because, well, I, I wasn't doing anything like that. When I had decided to end my uh, H. pylori treatment right away when I was getting these bad side effects right at the beginning, I, I said, the problem is the length of time. Two weeks is a very long time to be just absolutely miserable. And when I heard about this with the 30 days, I thought, you know, 30 days, that's the tough thing is to deal with this for 30 days. It's just a a very long time. A month can pass quickly if you're just, if you're enjoying yourself or if you're, uh, even if you're just living life normally, that the time can pass quickly. But if you're in unpleasant, uh, something unpleasant is going on. If you're uh, just sitting in a dark room with nothing to do. If you're super, super sick or in pain, then it can seem to last forever. 
So that's I remember that's what I was thinking for myself is wow if if this if this is going to just make me feel so awful. Uh, the thought of getting through two weeks of this is just that's that's the tough part. That's the part that I don't think I can take right now. So I do wonder if he tested this though. I really do think this is the type of thing that you should be able to tell after, yeah, maybe two days or so, if if you think you have what it takes to do it. So that story's over. I don't like making prop bets for this reason, exactly because even things that seem impossible... If someone's willing to take the side of doing it, they may know something you don't. There may be something unusual about them, that they can do something that you wouldn't think they could. You may even stumble upon it. Um, the one time I did, I think I've mentioned this before, but the one time I was stupid regarding not taking a prop bet was when someone accidentally stumbled upon something I was good at and I still turned it down. And that was at Wii Baseball. Nintendo Wii Baseball I was actually very good at it And uh, Matt Woodward Also known as Woodrow uh, He's kind of a big degenerate He he still plays poker a lot He gets a lot of deep finishes in the World Series Very good player But he's a degenerate And at a party Around like 2008, 2009 I think it was in 2009 Woodrow offered to play me For $20,000 in a game of Wii Baseball. Well, I thought this was an angle. I thought that he must be really, really good at it. And, you know, he might even be better than me. And that uh, I'm going to play and lose and I'll owe him 20000 I'm thinking, why, why would he offer 20000 to play me in uh, Wii Baseball unless he knew he was really good at it? So I turned it down. I had never talked about playing it before. I had never talked about uh, that I even had a Wii. So I turned it down, and later on, I found out that uh, he wasn't good at the game at all. <laughs> he just figured that I hadn't played it and and just wanted to gamble. So had I said yes, I would have destroyed him, and that's a game that if you're not, uh, if you're not good at it, you'll lose every single time to someone who's good at it. So that would have been just a, a sure thing, $20,000. And I know he wasn't lying about that because I know he, he he made other prop bets about other competitions like that and other things that he wasn't that good at and lost money to people. So this wasn't even like he was pretending not to be good or pretending not to have played before. Like he really had barely played it before. <laughs> so I was too suspicious. There I should have said yes just because I knew I was really good at it and if he was better, so be it. It's not like we both it's not like he said he hadn't played before and I hadn't played before and we I had to trust that. Here I knew I was already really good at it, so even if he had played before I knew I had a, a good chance to beat him. I, I just I still thought, oh maybe there's an angle here. But that's an unusual story. Usually when people offer things like that, it's it's because you know, whoever is offering the bet, whoever's offering to do something where you think you'll have the better end of it, they usually do. So, always be careful about that with prop bets.
Last show, we talked about the Gordon Veo lawsuit against Poker Stars and how it backfired. So, now we're going to talk about the end to the whole thing. There's finally an end to the story. And I, I wouldn't say it's a happy ending, but it's an ending. So, if you recall, Gordon Veo, I don't know, Veo, Veo, I don't know how you say his name, but I call him Veo. Gordon Veo was the runner-up in the 2016 World Series of Poker. Was it 16? I keep forgetting if it's 2016 or 17. Do you remember Trader Risky? Was it 16 or 17? No clue. <laughs> I'm forgetting. If it, it wasn't 18 or 15. It was, it was the main event? Yeah, the main event. It was It was uh, 16. That's it. I was right. It was 16. Okay, yeah, so, so 2016, he was the runner-up in the main event. That's always what he's best known for. But he got into a mess where he won a big tournament on Poker Stars for uh, $692,000. And Poker Stars claimed that he was playing illegally from the U.S. using a VPN, and they would not give him the money. So he sued Poker Stars in California which was already odd because this had nothing to do with California. He wasn't even, you know, of course, he, he's not supposed to have been in California when he played, so he can't claim he was there when he played. He claimed he was in Canada. And PokerStars has nothing to do with California, so why he filed the suit in California, it's not clear, but uh, he was suing them to get back the money. And it was found later on that documents that he had provided poker stars to supposedly prove that he was in Canada at the time of this event were found to be forged. And the way this was found was that uh, someone had shot their mouth off and a third party who heard about it went to poker stars and said, hey, I heard you got some documents from Gordon Veo proving that he was in Canada when he played those tournaments. Well, guess what? Those documents are forged. Uh, they modified actual bank statements and, and, and uh, phone bills to make them show something different than they really showed. And then this person uh, went on to uh, provide the name of the person who, uh, who had actually forged it. And either the forger himself or, or the third party then provided poker stars with the originals and the forged versions. So, Poker Stars really had the smoking gun at that point against Gordon Veo. That not only uh, was he really uh, likely playing from the U.S. like they suspected, but that uh, the proof that he sent them was forged. Now, apparently Veo had not actually sent this uh, proof into the court officially, but it had been sent, uh, he gave it to his attorney to give to the attorneys for poker stars. So at this point, there, there, it still is false evidence that's being introduced, even though it hadn't officially been introduced in court yet. So poker stars quickly went to court to get the case dismissed based upon this, and it was dismissed. And then, but well, actually, I'm skipping a step here. They went to Veo and told him that they knew about this whole thing but that they proposed, look, we could come after you for attorney's fees and costs over this whole thing, 
but we're not. We're, how about we just all walk away? How about we just forget the whole thing now? Well, in that time, he had changed attorneys. We talked about this on our last show. He says his previous attorney dropped him once they found out about the forgery. So for whatever reason, the new attorneys uh, dismissed the case to where, in a ma- manner to where it could be refiled. If he wanted, it was it was called being dismissed uh, without prejudice. So that meant he could refile at any time. And Poker Stars was unhappy with that. So Poker says, "Okay." Poker Stars said, "Look, our agreement was that we will not come after you for the attorney's fees and, and the costs. Only if you dismiss this with prejudice to where this whole thing's over. But since you've dismissed it in a way where you can refile, f you. Now we're coming after you for for the costs." And for the attorney's fees, and they, they claim they're going after him for uh, almost $300,000. So big, big backfiring. And uh, because PokerStars had to plead this in court, the whole story came out. Whereas, you know, had, had he just dismissed it with prejudice in the first place and walked away, then all that would have been known is that both sides just decided to end the whole thing, and that was that. And, and Gordon Vale would not have had the embarrassment of being uh, uh, a document forger who tried to use that as evidence that he was playing in Canada when he really wasn't. So this was very embarrassing for him. This could have been prevented. So it looked like Veo was, was really screwed, and it looked like there was a good chance that PokerStars would have prevailed in court to get these, these fees back, since there was a fraudulent element to the whole thing. Well, fortunately for him, PokerStars decided that they really didn't want to hassle with all this that uh, perhaps just to get their name out of the news having to do with, with people playing from the wrong location or, or just for goodwill or whatever it is, public goodwill, not goodwill for him, uh, they decided to offer once again to drop the whole thing. They said that if he will dismiss it now with prejudice to where he cannot refile, then they will drop their end of their lawsuit to re, uh, to recover the attorney's fees and the court costs. So he agreed, and they filed a joint motion on December 4th in the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California, where it was dismissed with prejudice, and uh, Poker Stars dropped their claim against him. So this is done. This is it. He can't refile. He's not in California, and uh, <clears throat> or or in federal court at all, I think. And uh, Poker Stars cannot come after him again for the attorney's fees, so it's done. And clearly, he's not going to continue pursuing this now that they've they have the goods on him. Now, yes, he could have continued with with his lawsuit and claimed that yes, I forged the documents, but I was still in Canada, but that was my only way to prove it, so I had to make up fake proof. But. Um, you know, let, let me give you an example of where someone may make up fake proof when they were telling the truth. It can happen, okay? Um, let's say tonight after radio, I'm feeling kind of crappy, and I decide that uh, I want to take a long walk. So I leave the house, I get, I get in my car, I drive to a place that I think would be nice to just have a, a late-night walk. And I, and I walk around for 90 minutes or so and then come back. Well, 
let's say uh, someone then contacts my girlfriend and tells them that uh, what I was really doing was uh, cheating on her. I was, I was actually meeting another woman and having sex with her during those 90 minutes. I wasn't really taking a walk. But in reality, I was just taking a walk. In reality, that person's making it up and falsely accusing me. The problem is I can't prove it. I, I have no, no way to prove that I was really just taking a walk. How, how do I prove I was walking? So at that point, I say, well, since I can't prove it, uh, uh, let me do this. And I, and I, I come up with, with someone who's willing to lie for me and claim that, uh, you know, that he went out with me and we took a walk together, you know, some other dude. Well, the guy would be lying. He wasn't really walking with me. He was making the whole thing up. But it was to uh, basically it would be me introducing false evidence to back myself in a real claim. So Veo could claim he did something like that, that he, yes, he modified these documents, but that was the only way that uh, he could prove that he was there. Since he really was there but had no proof. But the problem was that these documents seemed to show the opposite. <laughs> they seemed to show that, that he really was in California. So it wasn't just that it wasn't just that he added things to make it look like he was in Canada. They actually changed things that that previously showed he was in California. See he was screwed. He was screwed. So uh anyway, that's done. Embarrassing for Veo, but at least he's not gonna owe them any money. He's lucky that Poker Stars wasn't acting vindictive about this. They did. They they just decided they wanted it to be over. They gave him a scare, though. <laughs> they took a little while to reoffer this to him, but ultimately they did. So this is over. Seven seven five fraud fifty five seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. I was wondering if they were going to go after him. I was wondering if they were really really going to go through it, or if they were just posturing at the moment to. Teach him a lesson. Looks like it was the uh, the latter. <clears throat> so Trader Ruski had got lucky. I'm surprised they didn't. Uh, yeah, I, I thought at that point they were going f- full forward with it, but I, I did kind of wonder also. I wonder if they're going to back off at some point. But he is lucky. I agree with you there. So Trader Ruski, I got a question for you. Have you ever registered for a tournament and been given more chips? than you were supposed to get, where they just accidentally give you more starting chips than people start with. I have not. I haven't either. Um, this doesn't happen very commonly because usually they separate they separate out the chips before the event begins. So they, they already have these chips pre-counted and it's uh, impossible or very, very difficult to make a mistake. There was a story a few years ago where someone registered for some cheap tournament and then sat in the wrong tournament and sat in some super high buy-in tournament and then did really well. <laughs> and then they discovered what it was. But then it, um, I think they determined that – it was never determined if he knew for sure, but it was determined by the time that they kicked him out of it that, that he knew that he was in the wrong one and he got away with it. and So they, uh, they booted him and that was that. But uh, I, I don't think I have seen – it definitely didn't happen to me, but I don't think I've seen with anybody else where they're just given too many chips. But this did happen recently to a young guy named Justin Lapka. He's known in online poker circles as Lappy Poker. And he was given extra tournament chips by accident. 
as was somebody else. So this is what happened, and it, it's a pretty crazy story. I mean, that by itself, okay, you know, some mistake, who cares? But l- listen to the whole story. It, it's nuts. So Justin Lapka, he's a young poker pro, and he's recently been training under pros like Ryan LaPlante. So he's like an up-and-coming poker player trying to make a name for himself, training with already successful players. He realized right away that he got 45K chips at WSOP Circuit Event Number 5 at Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas. He got 45K instead of 40K. He realized it right away. He later admitted this. But he didn't say anything. In his own words, he said it was a, quote, bank error in your favor situation. That's referring to the game Monopoly, where you can land on a spot and get like 200 Monopoly dollars for free because it's a bank error in your favor. So he considered it a bank error in your favor situation and decided just to keep the extra chips and not say anything. So he, he basically thought, hey, yeah, that's the way it goes. I, I, I happen to be lucky in this way. Some, some people get lucky with the cards. Uh, other people get lucky because they're given 5,000 too many chips. So... I got lucky, tough luck everybody else. Now, that's already kind of unethical, but let's be honest here. Many of you listening would have done the same. You may say you wouldn't have. You may be on your high horse. Oh, no, I wouldn't do that. A lot of you would do the same. Now, I I agree that some of you would probably say something, and not even out of fear of being caught, but really some of you would just say something because you you think it's fair to say something and and not to start out with more chips than others. But but some of you would say, okay, you know, I I wouldn't have stolen 5,000 chips but if it happens to already be in my stack, if I happen to just start with 5,000 extra, I'm not going to say anything. I bet a lot of you listening would uh, would do that. A lot of poker players would do that. And that by itself would not be a big story if he just got an extra 5K in chips and noticed and didn't say anything. As I said, it's unethical, but it's not a big story. And a lot of people would do it in the same spot. But it gets a lot more complicated than that. See, it wasn't just him that had this mistake occur. Uh, Another player right around the same time also was given 45K. Well, this other player was very honest. So the second that player got to the table, and I think he got there slightly after Lapka did, the second player who also had 45K said, "Uh, uh, hang on, hang on, floor, floor. Um, I have 45k starting chips. I'm only supposed to have 40. That's what the other guy says, not Lapka. So the floor looks and says, oh, wow, well, thank you for being honest. Okay, well, yeah, we've got to take your other 5k away. Thanks for bringing it to our attention. Thanks for being an honest player. And is that, how, how did this happen? He said, I don't know. That's just what they gave to me over here. So the floor man said, oh, well, we, we better check here. Is there anybody else who's new to the table recently that sat down? We've got to check that... Uh, No one else got this. So it was pointed out that Lapka also just sat down. And I don't know if he played any hands, but whatever it was, it was very clear that he also had the extra 5K. Now, Trader Ruski, if you got that far, if you were Justin Lapka and you've decided to keep the 5K, but then they've discovered it, and they're not going to get you in any trouble, they're just saying, okay, give us the 5K back, what would you do at that point? I certainly wouldn't be in that situation, but I would, uh, of course, give it back. 
Yeah, I, I would say give it back and maybe then maybe all- ask surprise he didn't count or something like that. Right, right. That that's what you do at that point. At that point, if if you're trying to pull this angle, and then you get caught with this, what you do is you say, "Oh, well, I, I had no idea. I hadn't I hadn't counted yet. Oh, okay. Well, here you go. Here's my five K backup. Glad they figured this out. <laughs> you know, and I mean, they can't prove that you knew. You'll know in your own brain that you knew, but they they can't prove it. So at least you've you've preserved your reputation at that point. You've given back the five k, and you've preserved your reputation that you just hadn't counted yet, which is actually pretty reasonable. I, I don't always count. Well, actually, I do usually count my chips, but I don't. There have been times I haven't. There have been times I've been in a tournament. And I go, oh crap! You know, I never counted my starting chips. So yeah, he could have said he didn't count, or that you know that he did count. He just miscounted because he was expecting forty k, whatever. But but no, that, that's not what happened. When Justin Lapka was told about this and it was shown he had 45K and he admitted that, yes, he was given 45K instead of 40, he said that he should be allowed to keep the 5K because it was given to him. (laughs) I don't know what rationale he used, but he actually started arguing with a floor man that this 5K is already in his stack and it should stay there. I don't know if he tried to claim that uh, it was affecting the way he was playing, or I, I don't know what it was, but he was trying to make the argument that even though this was caught very quickly, it's a, I, I can understand the argument. Let's say he played for a while, and now he was down to 6K, and they want to take 5 of the 6K away. At that point, you have to say, okay, now you can't do it because uh, that affected the way he bet and played other hands. At that point, it wouldn't be fair to take the 5K away. But this was like... I don't know if he even played any hands yet, or if he did, it was it was it. There'd been no significant movement in his chip stack, but he just decided that since he sat down and started already with it, that he should just keep it. And people got mad at the table, and they argued with him, and the floor man argued with him, and he just would not budge. He was saying, "No, no, no! I should keep the five K. This isn't fair. How can you guys do this to me?" And people couldn't believe it. They could not believe it that he's actually sitting here arguing about this instead of just sheepishly returning it and being done. Then they got to the break. And on the break, people heard him whining that he got ripped off. And how dare they take the 5K? Because what had happened is the the floor man finally just said, tough luck, I'm taking it, and took it. But he was whining the whole break that he got screwed, that this wasn't fair. And people heard him. He was very loud about it in the hallway. Not like disruptively loud, but he was loud enough to where everyone could hear that he was bitching about that 5K being taken from him. The 5K he wasn't supposed to have in the first place. He's complaining, complaining, complaining that somehow this this is something bad. That uh, he got the short end of the stick here. Can you believe this? I still can't even figure out what rationale he was using. I, I would love to have been at the table when he tried to argue this. <laughs> I would, I would love to have been at the table when he tried to argue this. Well, I know because, like, with the bank situation he gives, or if they overpay you at a blackjack table, that's you playing against the house. 
then I'm giving him an extra 5K in a poker tournament. He's basically cheating every other player. Right, and, and he has no right to it. And, and, it and, and they caught this so fast, he can't even claim that this is a significant part of his stack or it affected the way he plays. There is no argument he could possibly have to keep this. And as you said, this screws the other players, not even the house, who made the mistake. So this caused uh, a big stir there. Everyone was talking about it. And because everyone was talking about it, someone brought up, hey, you know, I don't know if you guys realize this, but he, he trains uh, under Ryan LaPlante and some other guy, too. I, I, I forgot who else. but he, he was training under LaPlante and some other well-respected uh, tournament pro. So people are like, oh, wow, I wonder, I wonder what Ryan's going to say when he hears this. Uh, so very quickly, Lapka started to realize that he was making a mistake. Uh, I shouldn't say very quickly. I think he realized this after the tournament was over. He realized that he made a big mistake because this is going to get back to the two well-respected tournament pros who were training him, and they're not going to want to have anything to do with him. So he put out an apology, and I'll read you this apology. This was put out uh, on November 23rd. It was one of these uh, type out something on the iPhone notepad and then tweet it out apologies. So here it goes. I just want to acknowledge that I made a decision tonight without a full understanding of how my decisions may affect other people or the poker community at large. When I got to my table tonight at the World Series of Poker Circuit event number five for my second buy-in, I guess it was second buy-in, I guess he'd already bought in once, I noticed that I had been given 45k chips instead of 40k. At first I did not say anything about it and made excuses as to why it would be okay to stay put and say nothing. Those ranged from selfish to ugly and defensive in nature especially when another person joined the table with me, spoke up about the matter, as it happened to him too, and the floor took a look at both of our stacks and retrieved the 5K from both of us. I realized right here and now that my response to others about why I did not speak up at the time was full of BS and that I was not taking responsibility for my actions and doing something that is inherently wrong. When someone like myself receives additional chips above starting stack, it lowers the equity of others in the tournament, creating unequal conditions by which we all compete, thus lowering the integrity of the game and my own integrity as a person. This was not something on my mind at the time, though. I stayed quiet and took the bank error in your favor approach that is very flawed and full of misguided presumptions. I just focused on playing poker and didn't own up until after the fact. Part of it was definitely my own error in thinking about it, but also that I've never had a situation like this occur to me before. Any time at the poker table when the pot was pushed to me or the wrong person at a casino where I found someone's bill or or when I or, uh, or when I found someone's billfold or lost money on the ground, the incident directly affected people in an obviously negative and hurtful manner. In such scenarios, I've always maintained that the right be done to the people who've been wronged. Same applies at times where I've owed people money or been in makeup to a backer. I've never intentionally tried to wrong people and always put my, put my best effort to make right with others. This, however, was a different situation and not something I've ever come across. When I realized I had too many chips, I sat there frozen as to what I should do. In that time, someone else spoke up that they had been given too many chips, and then I was also asked and gave the floor of the chips above the starting stack. I don't want to make excuses anymore, but just own up to the fact that I am human, that I make a lot of mistakes in life, including at the poker tables. It was a mistake not to speak up right away. It was even a bigger mistake to defend myself in front of others, despite it being obviously clear that I'm in the wrong here. I'd like to, uh, and this includes people like my coach, Ryan LaPlante, and Corey Walland, uh, to name some specific people whose names and brands I may have tarnished in the process. I also apologize to anyone in the community who believes in me as a person and poker player. I'm sorry I've let you down. 
I promise that I'll do my best to make this up to you. The true test of someone isn't how you get knocked down, but how you're able to get up afterwards and face yourself in the world. Sincerely, Lappy Poker. So some applauded him for this apology and said it was heartfelt. Others criticized him for only apologizing once he was caught, and some said that he was only apologizing because of the potential effect it could have on his future coaching with Ryan LaPlante and Corey Welland. So here's how I feel about it. Uh, obviously, the, the issue here, the big issue here surrounds him protesting the 5K being taken back from him. And, th- and this apology, notice, that didn't really talk about that much. He didn't talk about how, how he was bitching in the hallway afterwards about it, or he had a big fight with a floor man. He, he was more talking about his excuses, like like they caught it, he gave it back, and then made some BS excuse about it, and people are mad. That No, p- people are really mad because he argued that he shouldn't have to give it back. That's the egregious part here. People are mad that he then whined in the hallway that they took it from him forcefully. That's the problem here. That's the big, big problem here. But he spent most of the time focusing on that he kept it in the first place, which is the much smaller part of this whole thing. Uh, It's one thing to keep your mouth shut about an edge that lands in your lap that you didn't try to get due to a tournament staff mistake. It's another to have that mistake be caught and somehow still feel you have a right to that unfair advantage. So I don't even know what he thought he was accomplishing by arguing here. But to me, the apology seemed forced, forced, and he he engaged in too much self-deprecation of, uh, and, and, oh, I didn't know I was hurting anyone rhetoric. I think once he felt an apology was necessary, he should have just said he saw the extra chips, decided to take the edge he was given, and didn't really think it through how how unethical it was. And now he realizes upon further thought about that he made a big mistake, and then apologized for arguing about it. And that's it. There's no need for I'm good. I'm a good person. I'm a human. I make mistakes in life. I don't try to hurt people. Blah blah blah. Just you know, if you want to quickly say I've never had any kind of scandal surrounding me before. This was just you know this was a mistake, and uh, I haven't made them before. I haven't made done anything like this before, and I'll never do it again. That's fine to say. It's fine to let people know you're not a habitual angle shooter or scammer. But this one seemed to have too much of uh, a lot of I'm a good person. I don't hurt people. I'm human. Uh, just admit you screwed up, promise you've learned from it, and move on. That, that's what you should do here. And I, I think that apology was... It, it was something I felt like was written because he felt he had to. So, uh, someone else on the forum wrote... Lappy is a fucking mong. He whines like a little cunt every time he loses a fucking pot. He's the definition of a self-entitled little bitch, so it doesn't surprise me that he'd whine and bitch that he deserved those extra 5K in chips. So I, I can't comment on that because I've never played with a guy before and I'm not really familiar with him. I, I had heard of him, but not really much about him prior to this. But yeah, if, if that's true about him, if he does complain every time he loses a pot, then yeah, I, I this does kind of go together. Trader Risky, what was your impression from this apology? Pretty much the same thing you said. He didn't address the whole big issue about him crying. Yeah. <laughs> and arguing. Yeah. And you've you got to say something about that. And you've got to, and you, you've got to just, but I, I think what people like to see in apologies is realism. I think that's what people really want to see. That's why the Chris Ferguson apology went over so badly back in May. People just want to hear realism. They don't want to hear the the 
uh, an apology shaped in a way to where it sounds it makes the person seem the most innocent or good-hearted as possible. People like just hearing, yeah, I screwed up. Yeah, I, I thought I can get an edge there. I uh, didn't really think about how wrong it was. Uh, you know, they caught me. Uh, I, I, I stupidly argued. I don't even know why I did that. And uh, yeah, now that I think about it, it was pretty unethical. I don't know what the hell I was doing that day. I don't even have a history of doing things like that. I'll never do it again. I've learned a lot here. Uh, sorry, everybody. People go, yeah, okay. I, I can relate to that. Like, like people will read that and think, yeah, you know what? In my life, I've done the occasional uh, dishonest thing too. Okay, yeah, people screw up every once in a while. All right, fine. Like that, that's that's what people will read. Like you, you don't want to lay it on too thick about what a good guy you are and what a good human you are, and uh, you, you don't want to. It sounds too phony that way. Just, just admit, yeah, you thought you could get an edge, and you didn't really think it through what that really was doing. So, what a weird situation. The, the, the weirdest thing, just that he argued. That's the weird part. Otherwise, this wouldn't be a story. No one would be talking about it. No one would be talking about this. If, if when that other guy pointed it out, if all he said is, oh, really? I have an extra 5K? Oh, I'm so sorry. Here's, here's the 5K back. That's it. It's over. Wouldn't even be mentioned anywhere. And if it was, he'd have a perfect defense. I just didn't count. Even if people did see him counting, even if, if they knew that he knew, it wouldn't be a big story because he gave it back right away. Maybe it'd be a little story. That's Boy, did he make a mess of this one. I don't know what he thought he was even accomplishing. It's insane. Gamblebot's chafed penis is in chat. Said this is the, He's the same one who criticized him on the, the forum, by the way. He said, Lappy is a fucking cunt bitch. He played with... Uh, I've played with him on ACR. Watched his stream while playing him. He whines every time he loses a coin flip. He was a fucking... Ter- he was fucking terrible before he got coaching. A spewtard monkey. And his catchphrase is... Snappy snoodles. <laughs> I have to admit that makes me dislike him immediately. Snappy snoodles. Come on. When does he even say snappy snoodles? You're right. What kind of fucking straight guy says something that's st- fucking stupid? Tilted the shit out of me. Well, maybe, maybe there's a point to it then. Maybe, maybe Snappy Snoodles is meant to tilt you. You ever think of that? I, I've actually used the chat. I, I've used the chat to tilt people before. Not with things like Snappy Snoodles, but uh, I've done it in a lot of ways before, as people have seen who played with me. I even did it with a catchphrase, but I, I did it. I did it with a catchphrase that was associated with the screen name I had chosen. This is on Cake Poker. I was playing as Jim Rockford. And every time I won a pot, I would type, this is Jim Rockford. Leave a message at the tone and I'll get back to you. Which, of course, has nothing to do with winning a pot, but I do that every time. That would be the first line at the beginning of the uh, Rockford Files theme song. So anyone who watched that show has that ingrained in their head. So I just do that every time I won a pot and it really tilted people. That's why I did it. Just it was so frustrating for them to read that after I beat them in a pot. I didn't say snappy snoodles though. All right, let's move on from lappy poker. A player has made accusations against the Commerce Casino that they are violating the law. Explain what's going on here. 
Now, th- this is actually kind of an old story, but uh, it, it basically wasn't picked up or covered anywhere. It was posted to 2 Plus 2 back in January 2017, and it got a little bit of response, but no one really talked much about it, and the whole thing died. So I happened to catch it when I was browsing through 2 Plus 2, and uh, as far as I know, this is still going on, so I think everybody should hear about it, because it's, it's pretty bad. Hopefully it's changed, but I don't think it has. So uh, I need to explain the way that the non-poker games at Commerce work. Now, Commerce Casino, as most of you know, is the biggest card room in the world. It's not the biggest casino in the world. It's the biggest card room in the world. It's located in the L.A. area. And in California, any card room that is not an Indian casino, which Commerce is not, they are required to not derive financial benefit from the results of any game played there. So no matter how, whether you win or lose in any game at Commerce, the house cannot benefit from that. The house can only take a fixed percentage or piece of the pot, regardless of who wins it. So in poker, that's very easy. They just take a rake. But what about in the games where you're playing against the house in what they call the California pit games, games like pie gow or blackjack. How do they do that? How can they do that? If you're playing against the house, how can they have no financial interest in whether you win or lose? Well, the only way to do that is to where the games are not banked by the house and where commerce just takes a commission out of each hand, the same way they rake a poker hand. So that's what they have to do by law. So in each of these California pit games at Commerce, that is every game that's not poker there, there's the player, who just anybody who wants to go sit and play. There is the banker, who wins and loses based upon how the player does. They're basically playing against the player. They're acting as the house. And then there's the house, which all they do is take a commission out of each hand, no matter what the result is. And that's Commerce. So... Commerce doesn't care if, you know, they don't get any benefit if the player gets slaughtered there, nor do they lose their asset. The player does really well. That's all on the banker. Now, these are negative expectation games for the player. So the banker does get the advantage of being in a positive expectation situation. Now, why wouldn't everybody want to be the banker? Because everybody does have the ability by law to volunteer to take turns to be the banker. So why would someone maybe not want to be the banker? Well, because there can be a lot of variance to it. Especially in games where there's some kind of uh, jackpot one can win, or where the limits are high and the player can bet what they want up to the limit. So maybe you don't want to take the risk that the banker would have to take, even if it's positive expectation for you. Uh, here's an example. This has nothing to do with commerce, but I'll show you why someone may not want to be a, be a banker. Let's say someone offered me to bank a video poker machine in Vegas. And let's say it was a uh, a $50 per credit machine, meaning a royal flush would pay $200,000 for the player hitting it. Now, if I took the side of the banker 
on that video poker machine. There's no video poker machines in commerce, by the way. I'm just using this as an example. It would be very positive expectation for me, but I wouldn't want to do it because there would be too much variance. There would be too much risk of ruin. Where if someone got lucky and hit like two royal flushes, I'd owe them $400,000 right off the bat. So that's why I wouldn't want to do that. Unless I went in with several other people to bring down the the variance. Or bring down the, uh, not so much the variance, but bring down the potential loss. So same thing at these games of commerce. If you're going to bank it, you have to have a deep enough roll. And the desire to risk taking a big hit to want to do it. So not a, a lot of times people don't want to be banker or they don't have the money to be banker. So what commerce has to prevent this from happening where nobody wants to bank and they can't bank is they have what's known as a corporation. It's known as the corporation that will bank these games when nobody else wants to. The corporation's role is either to bank the games when nobody wants to bank it or to cover part of the action when the player banking doesn't have the proper role to do so. So maybe the corporation will take uh, 90% of the action of, of a hand or or they'll take 50% or you, often they'll take 100%. But players should have the opportunity to bank if they want to. So, for example, if I wanted to go down to Commerce tonight and be the banker in these games, I should have the ability to, at least uh, until somebody else wants to and then take turns with them. Uh, There should not ever be the case where the corporation just says, nope, we're doing all the banking, tough luck, you can't bank. The players always have the right to volunteer to be bankers. Well... In January 2017, a player made a video and a post on 2 Plus 2 alleging that Commerce is not allowing this and that they're banning people from the entire Commerce Casino if they attempt to bank. Listen to this. If you have been banned from the Commerce Casino for trying to player ban games such as Baccarat, Blackjack, Ultimate Texas Hold'em, Pygal, Please contact me immediately. By the way, if the voice sounds funny, it, it appears this guy's kind of putting on like a fake accent. In this video, the guy has on like a turtleneck pulled up over his mouth, sunglasses on, and a hoodie to where really all you can see is his nose and his eyebrows. And he's using what's probably a modified voice, not electronically modified, but he's probably using a fake accent. Uh, I'm not sure why he's concealing his identity, but he is. But I believe him, though. Keep listening. At commerceplayerbankers at gmail.com. I was banned from player banking very recently. I have been contacted by more than a dozen people who have also been banned from the Commerce Casino for attempting to player bank games such as Blackjack, Baccarat, Pie Gal, Ultimate Texas Hold'em, Three Card Poker, Crazy Poker. Anyone familiar with player banking knows that the Commerce Casino cannot ban customers who player bank. We are protected by the Department of Justice. I am filing a class action lawsuit against the Commerce Casino for their habit of 
banning, kicking out, barring people, players who attempt to player bank their games. This is illegal and it will be stopped. I was making good money. They know that. They know that player bankers have an advantage, that they have an advantage of between 5% and 10% house edge when they play or bank, and they want to monopolize that. This is illegal. Again, contact me at commerceplayerbankers at gmail.com. Again, commerceplayerbankers at gmail.com. And tell me what happened to you, what game you were banking, and I will be in touch with my lawyers. Thank you. Well, I don't know if this ever happened, because this is back in January 2017. Uh, you, you can try to email him if you want, commerceplayerbankers at gmail.com. He wanted to file a class action lawsuit and wanted others who were in his situation to join him. But it's unclear what happened since then. The claims were not ever verified in any way, but there have been others who've come forward and said that they knew this was happening uh, in the 2 plus 2 thread and even on Poker Fraud Alert. So... This is what someone wrote on Poker Fraud Alert, for example. A person named Go Buckos. They wrote, Player bankers have been getting kicked out of California card rooms for well over a decade, and not just commerce. Most of the corporations will illegally kick back part of their profits to the casino. The corporation willing to kick back the highest percentage of the take is the one that usually gets said casino's business. It's easy to see how under the system, player bankers would be unwelcome as they cut into both the corporation's profits and the house kickback. It's an asinine system necessitated by an asinine set of rules, but given that this is California, it doesn't really surprise me. After all, this is the state that requires signs at parking garage entrances stating that gasoline causes cancer. <laughs> okay, so anyway. Apparently this, this is kind of known that this just happens. Uh, someone else wrote in the, in the thread, uh, Jay Jammy wrote, not only are they banned by the casino, but the corporation will let people know, moving in on their action, that the action is, quote, unwelcome and that they should bank somewhere else. So I guess the corporation even warns people, ah, you shouldn't be doing this. You, you better you better go somewhere else. I'm not sure if he means they're, like, threatening them or just giving them the heads up that they better quit this or they're going to be banned real soon. So I am surprised that something can't be done about this. Commerce is not an Indian casino. They don't just make up their own rules. They are under government regulation. So I'm not understanding why people can't just report report this as it occurs and then have some kind of regulator come after them. Because there are rules. Like, for example, commerce can't just uh, – they can't bank their own games. They can't, uh, they can't just run casino-style blackjack. They can't put in slot machines or video poker machines. They can't take sports bets. They, they can't just go do these things. In fact, even Indian casinos can't do some of these things. They can't. Take sports bets, for example. Uh, but even Indian casinos, they if you have an issue there, uh, you can't even sue them. If you have a civil issue with them, you, act, you actually or a regulatory issue with them, you actually have to take it up with their own tribal commission, which gets you nowhere. But commerce is not like this. So I'm surprised this one can't go to the state of California and just make this complaint. This should be easy to prove or disprove. Eric Benzamokin actually commented in this thread. Uh, he said that the amount of that uh, the state makes isn't really the issue. The state gets their money either way. I do think that uh, there may be some kickback arrangements in play or maybe even the corporations that are actually shells for the casinos themselves that may be worthy of litigation. So 
Eric, who's an attorney, thinks that it's possible that uh, this could be a decent case if it were to be filed. I did know two players, two former Limit Hold'em players. They were twins. Uh, if you played in the upper Limit Hold'em scene in the 2000s, you probably know who they are. I forget their names, but they're they're twins. They're they look like they're like Middle Eastern or something. Uh, they were young guys. They they were probably like at the time around 30, and they <clears throat> actually had a corporation and were banking games. I, I think eventually they stopped, but they were. So, <clears throat> the, the, it, these definitely weren't all just subsidiaries of the casinos. I'd have to guess they're probably not. I, I'd have to guess that this is just kind of a kickback situation. And that part of the kickback situation is the agreement that others won't nose in on the action. I think it's kind of a you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours situation. We'll give you some kickback, but keep others out of our game. And it's just something that seems to happen. And it's one of these things until the state decides to clamp down on it, it's going to continue. I wouldn't even be surprised if there was some corruption going on at the state level that whoever is supposed to regulate this is looking the other way because they're getting bribed. You can never be too dismissive of conspiracies involving state or local government and officials being corrupt. Because these things really happen. Especially if it's not a state with a particularly strong gaming commission. It's a lot harder for this sort of thing to occur in a state like Nevada, where gaming is such a huge part of the state that they have a strong gaming commission that needs to uh, act properly in order to prevent uh, any appearance of impropriety. But uh, in California, it's not the same thing. The the gaming economy in California is a drop in the bucket compared to the state economy. It's not like Nevada, which has more gaming and it's a much smaller state. Anyway, if you do want to try to bank at one of these places and you're willing to risk a ban, you may want to try it and then report them when it happens or sue them. I think one day this will probably change. One day someone will finally take action and do something. I'm just surprised it can go on like this. Trader Risk, have you ever played those games or those California games at these places? I mean, maybe once or twice many, many years ago. But, uh, yeah. Try to stay away from those. Yeah, me too. I, I've never even played them. Uh, JSTAT said in chat, uh, some California card clubs don't have a, a collection and, and still profits from the house, house percentage. The corporation and the players pay a collection in most clubs. Very profitable to beat the corporation at, at Easy Baccarat, uh, Dragon 7 at 40 to 1 payouts. I guess JSTAT's found some uh, positive expectation situation there. He said, I, I asked Governor-elect Gavin Newsom to appoint me, that is uh, JSTAT, as a commissioner to the California Gambling Control Commission, a long shot, but I at least tried to help with the gambling issues. 
I'd back that. Jay Stat's very knowledgeable about California gambling. I would. I'd like to see him as a, a commissioner. I don't think Gavin Newsom's going to respond to him though. Oh, apparently, uh, Lappy Poker is streaming on Twitch right now. Okay, I've got to hear this. I'm going to click on it. <laughs> Let, let's let's listen to Lappy Poker. From the filmmakers of what the world is this? Oh, some, some stupid commercial first. I got to watch. This is on Twitch. Okay, when the commercial's over, I'll turn it back on. I want to run away. What? Can you hear this, Trader Risky? No, I'm putting it on my iPad. Oh, okay. Let me play it. So he's playing some song in the background, singing with it. He's playing on uh, Bovada. Right. And then we're actually going to rip here, guys. We're in the money of this, uh, right? Yeah, we're in the money of this 44 3K. So he's playing tournaments. Bigs. This guy's been pretty active at our table. He's pretty loose, aggressive. His stats are... Run into well, cold. Need to bathe at the heart. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> Here comes a wine. Plop the Bible too, and we just chop. So he's referring to he's referring to the man. fact that he's referring to the fact that he just had uh, it all in fives against deuces. Flop the five on an all heart board. The deuces had no heart, and then it ran out like two two more hearts. Oh, here here comes more whining. Open and a and a rejam. The fuck, dude. He's still complaining about that hand. All right, dude. What do you What do you got this time? You got sevens. Okay, dude. Now he's losing to the same guy need, with sevens against ace deuce. Face, man. Yeah, now he just lost to the guy. I'm not folding to you after you put put it in like that. Maybe I should be folding to him because he's not aggressive, like rejamming aggressive, but he is like a whale who just can't fold. He he just he just has to call off with with any bit of equity. So I don't know. So maybe his rejam for 10 bigs from the small blind versus my button open, I should be folding ace deuce, actually. I guess that was just frustration from from fucking chopping fives to deuces <laughs> once we flop a five. Like. He's eating potato chips on here, too. Come on. That music's tilting me. I, I feel like it's like... I feel like I just walked into a gay club or something. Did, did, did he get this music from the, the club that Ryan LaPlante goes to or something? Is that where he got this music? Jeez. I, I don't want... I understand he's trying to put some background there, but I, I just find the music kind of tilting. I wouldn't want to sit here watching this for hours with that club music in the background. Hi, hi, hi! He's eating potato chips and we're listening to club music as he's playing. He must be eating Lay's here because he can't just eat one. I don't watch these Twitch streams, but I, I can't imagine that most of these involve eating noisy potato chips and blasting club music in the background. I just turned this on at a random time, and it's actually funny. Not, not funny in a good way. Now he's drinking. Drinking out of some... Yeah, because there's a difference between someone being like a whale who just can't fold 
and won't fold um, to like to like your aggression. Like you triple barrel somebody, right? And they call off with bottom pair or jack high or ace high or queen high or whatever. Uh huh. And they're a whale, right? That's the that's the definition of the guy on my left at that table where I rejammed the fives over the open, and he overcalled. He over he overcalled off with deuces. There's a difference between those kinds of opponents who just don't who just refuse to like fold and and just like won't believe you're you're like they just always think you're bluffing and and stuff like that. There's a difference between that kind of a fish and like. A maniac, hyper aggressive fish who will rejam like seven three off versus you when you open button. All right, I've heard enough. I can't stand this anymore. Anyway, if you want to see Lappy though, if you're listening live, he's on right now. He's on right now. Twitch twitch.tv slash Lappy Poker. <laughs> and I, I think he jinxed himself. He wrote cashing tourneys, killing the game. Seventeenth final table this week, and it's only Wednesday. As soon as he writes "killing the game," that's when he's going to start taking the beats. That fish he's talking about just you know beat him in two hands. One of the times the fish was ahead, one of the times he was ahead. Um, Gamble Gamblebot Chafe Penis just said in chat he uses all the poker buzzwords and has no fucking clue what he's talking about. Uh, LOL, talking about him fold, not folding. He literally has no fucking fold button. He empties the clip all the fucking time. From the hand I saw with the fives, I have to agree. We we came in the middle of that hand, but basically Lappy opened with, with the fives. I think the deuce is cold called. And then this other guy who's aggressive jammed from uh, the blind or something like that. And then, or not yeah, he re-raised and then Lappy went over the top and uh, the deuce is called. And the original re-raiser folded. So, I mean, yeah, if you could have seen everybody's cards, that was a smart play. But but with fives, you know, really, how often are you ahead and how often are you crushed and how often are you racing? And against two people, you got to think one of them is going to call you off and you're going to be in trouble. That's what I would think. So, that was a good find. That he's, he, it's, it's convenient. He was twitching right now. Twitching in more ways than one. Okay, so speaking of Indian casinos, I just mentioned before the Commerce is not an Indian casino. If you ever have an incident in an Indian casino where they screw you in some way, you can forget ever doing anything about it because they make the decisions. They're the judge, jury, and executioner about any dispute that comes up. Because anything you try to take them to court for goes to their own tribal court. And can you imagine suing the Indian tribe in their tribal court? That would be like uh, that would be like, like suing me and my mom as the judge. Would you feel good in that spot? That, that's pretty much what it's like suing uh, Indian casinos. So... There are stories all over the place of Indian casinos screwing people. And you need to know that before you play there. Whenever you go to an Indian casino, you have to know that there is some chance that you're going to get screwed, especially if it's one that is not associated with 
a national corporation. Like Harris Rincon, which is now known as Harris Resort Southern California, at least with them, they have to answer somewhat to the Caesars Corporation. They have to uphold certain standards that uh, Caesars makes them uphold. But these independent ones, which are most of them, they don't have to uphold any standards. They just can do what they want. And you can really, really get screwed. And the most you can do back to them is just publicize what they've done to you, which truthfully doesn't do that much because everybody's kind of selfish and just thinks about uh, their own situation. And degenerate gamblers don't seem to care too much if some other degenerate gambler uh, got screwed. As long as it's not happening too often, people kind of just overlook it and keep playing. That's the unfortunate truth. So at the Talking Stick Casino in Arizona... A man got screwed on a slot machine jackpot. Now, picture this. Picture you had a slot machine, which, of course, uh, in most cases, the odds are very bad in the first place. And you need to hit three double sevens on each. You need one in each reel. It's a three-reel machine, like having an old-school-looking machine. You need to hit three reels of double seven. And if you do, you get $50,000. Now, imagine... You hit the double seven on all three reels, and you've won, right? What if they tell you that they're not going to pay you because a light bulb was malfunctioning on the machine? (laughs) Well, that actually happened. That actually really happened at Talking Stick uh, very recently. And uh, I'm going to play you a news report. I'm going to try to put a commercial on it. I'm not going to let it do that. I'm going to play you a news report from the uh, Phoenix area. Listen to this. And uh, this is a crazy story. And it'll show you how screwed you really are if a casino decides that they don't want to pay you, even if it's for a stupid reason. Less than 10% of that. Well, that's what happened to one Scottsdale man at a talking stick casino. Team 12's Kai Beach is verifying what your rights are at casinos in Arizona. Well, this man tells us that money would have been a life changer for him and his family. He could have used it to pay off credit cards, debt, and even make a couple mortgage payments. But now after taxes, he's looking at pocketing just 2,500 bucks instead of 50 grand. The machine should have actually been taken off the floor. Ryan Sherry says he hit the jackpot, landing three double sevens on a slot machine at the Talking Stick Casino in Scottsdale. It shows that it should match up to $50,000. But when it came time for the payout, Sherry says the casino only paid him four grand instead of the $50,000. I go, is there any additional level that you can take this? And you can't, they go, you can take this to the tribal gaming board. Sherry says the casino told him the double seven on the far right of your screen had a broken light bulb, that it was supposed to be orange instead of red, and that the algorithm paid him what it was supposed to. But Sherry says that's not true and that he has the pictures to prove it. None of the the numbers or denominations above here even show $4,000. And once Jerry started fighting for the $50,000 he says he rightfully won, he got this letter from the Tribal Gaming Commission saying the $4,000 payout was all he was going to get. He could either take it or leave it. So in the end, what the tribe says goes. To verify consumer gambling rights at tribal casinos in Arizona, we turn to local attorney Corey Langhofer who tells us gamblers may be out of luck with lady luck on local tribal grounds. These tribes have sovereign immunity uh, over their own affairs. So we can verify that if you have a dispute with the tribal casino, your only option is to deal with the tribe. 
That's why Sherry stopped fighting for the 50 grand. The general manager of the casino, his, uh, his settlement was I, I, he'd buy me a beer next time I actually came to the casino. Now, casino officials still haven't returned our calls, and Sherry says he's not going to come back here and gamble, and he won't take that beer offered by the GM. In Scottsdale, Kai Beach, 12 News. Okay, so I know you weren't able to see anything when I played that clip, but uh, they actually showed the reel, and what they showed... Whoa, 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 whoa. I hate autoplay. What they showed was that he he actually took a picture on his phone of the jackpot. And it, the, the sevens are lined up properly. He really hit three double sevens, but the sevens are different colors. So if the sevens are all red, you get 50,000. If they're all orange, you get 1,000. So it's a big difference. So he hit three red sevens. The, the casino claimed, but did not provide proof, that the third red seven was supposed to be an orange seven, but that somehow, somehow, some way, the third seven, a light bulb was broken, making an orange seven look red. <laughs> That's what they told him. He couldn't disprove it. They ended up giving him fourth. <coughs> 4,000, which he pointed out was not even a payout on the machine. You're supposed to get 1,000 if you had three orange sevens. And in fact, two red sevens and one orange seven would earn much less than that. So he was claiming that they just made this up and didn't want to pay him. Now, yes, I could see them giving him a little bit more than the minimum if if there was a malfunction that made it look like he won 50000 and he really didn't. So the fact that they gave him 4000 isn't really uh, smoking gun proof of anything. But I, I have to say I don't believe it. I don't believe that a light bulb was malfunctioning. And if it was, um, it should have been easy to prove because the machine doesn't see the sevens. And that, that's what I'm not understanding here. The machine should have paid him. Uh, it, it should have automatically paid him the fifty thousand if it was the right sevens. If it really was two reds and an orange, and it paid him like two reds and an orange would, then it probably was the light bulb. Then at that point, um, they they probably could keep the money at that point. I think even in Nevada, they might actually win that case. Uh, there's there's a thing printed on each machine you play in Vegas where it says malfunction voids all plays and pays. And that's what that's for. If there's something in the machine that somehow gives you a win you shouldn't have due to a malfunction, then you don't have the legal right to collect that win. Uh, they, they don't mean by that that if you win and then the machine quickly malfunctions and doesn't pay you right or something that uh, that you're not entitled to the money. That's not what they mean. They mean if like a malfunction causes the machine to give you an additional advantage that they don't have to pay you. So I think this should have been easy to prove of what the machine paid. Now, it's possible that the machine doesn't display anything because it's a hand pay. A hand pay is anything above 1200 But I don't think that... If it were <clears throat> if it were to be two reds and one orange, I don't believe that it was going to pay more than twelve hundred. So if the machine locked up and needed a hand pay, then definitely it, it it really was a full jackpot. 
So I don't know if the guy is just pissed because it looked like he won 50000 and they didn't want to pay him because it really was a, a damaged light bulb, or if this is just an excuse. Um, I, I didn't even think these were uh, by by colored light bulbs like that. I, I, I guess... Uh, I never really thought of it that way. But I, I would have thought that uh, the seven itself would have been tinted in some way to shining light through. It would have been different. So you know, the the red seven would be one that has uh, uh, a red film behind it. So if you shine light, it comes out red, and orange would be orange. I, I wouldn't think there's the different lights making them red and orange. But it it seemed like this would be easy to prove or disprove, and and the guy is very insistent that he really hit it. But the bottom line is, if the Indian casino decides that they want to keep the money, they keep the money. There's another scam going on with Indian casinos that uh, in the San Diego area. This this one was in Arizona, but uh, San Diego area does the car giveaway scam, where they promote some kind of very expensive car they're giving away as a promotion, and people play and play and play to try to win. A car, you know, the one that they're promoting, some kind of luxury car worth, you know, $150,000 or $120,000, something like that. Well, once someone wins, then they bring you to the back and they give you a very aggressive speech that you don't want to take this car. Why? Because they have to report to the IRS the full retail value of the car and you're going to owe all kinds of uh, taxes on that. And that you probably don't want a car that expensive. That uh, you know, the second you drive the car off the lot, it's going to lose value. That the retail value they have to claim is one that's more than you'd have to, you'd really have to pay for it anyway. You know, that you could negotiate a deal much better if you were to be buying it. So basically, they're going to be taxing you on something you would have really never bought at that price. And that uh, you know, who really needs a car that expensive? And and what they try to do is then talk you into taking credit for having won the car for publicity's sake, but in reality taking a much smaller cash settlement to where uh, you know you win a car worth $120,000 and they say, hey, how about we just give you 40K cash or 20K cash? And believe it or not, people take it after getting really, really, really uh, browbeat by the aggressive sales pitch to trade the car in for some kind of much lesser cash value, a lot of people end up taking it. You know, they'll tell you you're going to lose half of it to taxes, then it's going to be expensive to maintain, and uh, they, they, they end up breaking it down for you to where if you take this much lesser cash prize, you'll come out better in the long run, is what they try to say to you. And most people are just kind of intimidated and say, okay, fine, 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 because if you try to say no, they just keep pressing, 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 pressing. Well, one woman in the San Diego area a few years ago just refused, just kept saying, nope, 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 I want the car. Well, they said, okay, fine, fine. And they gave her the paperwork, and then uh, they, they told her nothing. They, they told her to go, uh, go pick up the car at the dealership on such and such date. She went there. The dealership said, we don't know what you're talking about. You didn't win any car. So she went back to the casino and said, what the hell? What about the car I won? And they said, oh, yeah, we've looked into it, and uh, you violated the contest terms of service, so you get nothing. And what they claimed was that she shared players club cards with uh, her husband or her sister, someone like that. I think it was her sister. That they were, there were like two people playing on one card to earn more entries. 
and that that's against their terms of service, so she gets nothing now. So they, they basically pulled up the camera and tried to find anything she did to technically violate the rules and then wouldn't give her anything because they were mad at her for not taking the cash. And they got away with it. So shady stuff happens all the time at Indian casinos. And just know that. They may look like Vegas casinos. They may seem to operate like Vegas casinos, but they're, they're not Vegas casinos. And you have to know that. The really, really, really large ones are probably more reputable, but the medium-sized and small ones are, are really, really, really always looking out for themselves, and they'll take a win anywhere they can get it. So always be careful. Okay, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is our number to call or to text. Let's move on to the next topic here. Well, uh, a poker legend has passed away. Thor Hansen, who is credited by a lot of people for bringing poker to Scandinavia and Norway especially. He has died at the age of 71. Uh, Thor Hansen is nicknamed the godfather of Norwegian poker. He has two bracelets, but he hasn't won one in uh, 16 years. His death was not a surprise. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer earlier this year. He actually had cancer a number of years before that, but actually outlived the predictions. So he actually survived for a number of years with cancer, but this year it was said to be terminal and was. So this this wasn't him just dying of a heart attack abruptly and everyone being shocked, but still a lot of people were saddened by it. He had a very good reputation, uh, known to be a nice guy. Um, he didn't play as much in the last uh, 10 years or so. I don't know if I've ever played with him, but I, I definitely knew about him. And... As you probably know, poker is very popular in the Scandinavian countries, uh, Sweden, Norway, Finland, and this is uh, thought to be largely thanks to him, that he was a very popular figure there, and that uh, people started playing poker, even young people started playing poker in those countries because they wanted to be like Thor Hansen, the poker star, especially once poker started appearing on TV in 2003, and he had just won a bracelet the previous year. I used to play with Norwegians all the time on the CryptoLogic network. I even learned some Norwegian to talk trash to them. <laughs> they spoke English too, but they, they they always thought it was amusing when I would talk trash to them in, uh, in Norwegian. So uh, shortly after he passed away, Poker Stars actually wrote a blog about him called In Memory of Thor Hansen, where you can Google... Uh, in memory of Thor Hansen, PokerStars.com, you'll find the blog, and you'll see uh, uh, some stories about him. And uh, <clears throat> it's uh, it's a very positive story about him. And uh, here was a interview he had 
about uh, him and Larry Flint. It's a Poker Stars interview. Hello, everyone. You're watching PokerStars.tv, and welcome back to our coverage of the European Poker Tours Season 11 kickoff in Barcelona. I am with the one and only Mr. Thor Hansen. Now, first of all, everybody is always dying to know. Give us an update. What's happening health-wise? You look amazing. What's happening health-wise is like a miracle. I have uh, untreatable uh, illness, but they gave me a few months to live. It's almost three years ago, and... I'm just a bit had chemo for two and a half year, and I can take it. And the summer is strong, so I'm still here. I can still play a few poker hands. You look amazing. It's <laughs> like when they told me, it blew my mind. Now, but these are some really, really long days. Do you ever find yourself just being exhausted? Not very much. I love this game so much. Plus, I'm very relaxed to the game. I don't stress much about it, you know. I've been around for a while. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Now, by the way, this is at uh, EPT 11 Barcelona. This was in uh, 2014. So this shows you how long he actually managed to live with the cancer. He said that it was three years prior, that, I guess it was 2011, that he was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, he was actually able to live all the way till near the end of 2018. So that's doing pretty damn well when they told him he had a few months to live. So he stretched that pretty far. Speaking of being around for a while, what I want to know about is, so you used to play for Larry Flint, who is totally one of my idols, one of my favorite movies ever also, but um, tell me a little bit about how you guys got connected and, and what that relationship was like. Somehow, his game is seven-card stud poker, and uh, he heard that I was a good player, so he asked me if I would come to his private game and play in Beverly Hills at his house. And he was going to stake me, give me money to play. So he Deal. said, I'm going to give you a couple of hundred thousand each day, he said, and he split uh, the winnings. It's hard to say no, right? I'll take it. So I played for him like 10 years up in Beverly Hills, and then he built a casino, so we moved the game down there. We kept playing, and so, you know, that was some fun times. I can only imagine. Was it just the most incredible litany of people showing up to it all was, these games? really. I got to play with Woody Harrelson every day when he played the movie, because after the, the, the filming, they came to play poker, and Woody played every night. It was kind of fun, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I met so many strange people and famous people, and Larry is he's a going guy. It was nice to be around. That's that's a story I hadn't heard before, but uh, Larry Flint started the Hustler Casino in, uh, I think, the late 90s, I think like 99, around there. I first played there in January of 2001, but uh, Thor is saying that uh, Larry used to run a private game out of his uh, Beverly Hills home, and that he actually was staking Thor to play stud, and that uh, Thor was doing well in those games. And then once the Hustler opened, they actually were running the, the big game at Hustler itself. And it was no longer a private game. I saw some of these big games going in Hustler. I, I didn't know who Thor Hansen was at the time, so I wouldn't remember he was there. But I used to, when I played low limits there, when I first started playing poker, I would see like this 1,500, 3,000 game going there. And Larry would be in it. And I remember they would even, uh, the security guards would be wheeling Larry around in his wheelchair. And everyone would have to get out of the way. They, the security guards would basically bowl you out of the way if he didn't move. They, 
Larry's coming through, out of the way. They just push him through. So this, this, I probably saw one of those games going back when I was playing like three dollars, six dollars at the Hustler in early '01. According to several bloggers, you first of all, you have a gorgeous wife. Thank you. But that you had uh, one of the most wild bachelor parties ever. Is this true? That uh, wasn't my party, but that was one of the ones that arranged it. it was Larry Flint's party. Wait, you went to Larry Flint's bachelor party? Yeah, he gave us uh, $2 million to arrange it. So, you know, when the girls was bought in, we had no money for food. You know, it was <laughs> kind of a crazy party, yeah. Oh my gosh, boys, if you're listening at home, this is not normal. You do not do this. Well, it, it's fantastic to see you. We, of course, always love to see you on the stops. This is Thor Hansen. I'm Sarah Grant. You guys are with us on PokerStars.tv. That's an obnoxious song at the end. Okay, so, yeah, that's an interesting story at the end, too. He was given $2 million to throw a bachelor party for... Uh, Larry Flint. I'm trying to find a picture of his wife. There's, she's saying he has a beautiful wife. He's he's an older guy, obviously. Even in 2014, he was in his late 60s. So I'm trying to find a picture of his wife. I'm guessing is a lot younger than him. I think I found a one picture. Let me see. Let me see. Yeah, this is, I, well, I see an article here. I think it's his wife, too, but it's uh, January 2012. It says he was, he's been diagnosed with terminal cancer and has only two years left to live. This is January 2012. So, yeah, he did, he did a lot better. That would be really, 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 really hard to take to go to the doctor and hear that, that you've got not only cancer but only a few months to live. So what, what what can be very torturous, though, about that is that uh, those that do live longer, sometimes the cancer goes into remission and you can get the false hope that you're just going to live out a normal life and, and you're not going to die anytime soon. And then it just comes back. So, and then at some point you find out it's terminal and then you're, then at that point you don't know what to believe, but this case it was really true so anyway uh, he has a good reputation though i've never heard anything bad about the guy so rest in peace thor hansen very influential poker in uh very influential figure in scandinavian poker here's something else i i hope will be influential and that is a class action lawsuit involving resort fees now I want to talk a bit about resort fees. We had a show not too long ago where we had on a woman who's a lawyer that is like an activist against resort fees. And she actually runs the website killresortfees.com. This isn't this story is not about her that I'm about to tell you. But <clears throat> I always hear something inaccurate said about resort fees. And I want people to understand what they really are and aren't. So people will say, a resort fee, well, this isn't even a resort. Or, well, I don't want to use the services that they're talking about, how the resort fees uh, is covering, so why should I have to pay that? Or, you know, how could a resort fee be so high it's such a shithole property? I, I hear things like that all the time. And those are logical things to think. 
and I don't blame you for thinking them. But you have to think about resort fees the right way. I also hear people defending resort fees by saying, look, if you don't want to pay the resort fees, then don't stay there. You should look up how much they are, and if you don't want to pay them, don't pay. It's your choice as a consumer. Stop whining about them. I've heard people say that too. But let me give you a response to all of that. Resort fees are a trick. Resort fees are a scam. Resort fees exist for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to hide the true cost of the hotel room from Internet search engines. That's the whole point of them. That's the whole point. Now, they actually didn't start out that way. They actually started out in the mid-2000s, I think around 04 or 05. I first ran into them in early 05. Because of Priceline. Is, you know, Priceline, you'd name your own price to the room, and then desperate properties would be willing to take your lowball prices, and you'd stay there. They'd usually give you the worst room in the place, and they had a right to, but that's a different discussion for a different time. But some of these properties figured out a trick to extract extra money from Priceline customers, because it still kind of pissed them off that when they had empty rooms, they had to sell them for much cheaper just to fill them. So they found that by adding a, quote, resort fee and claiming that it was for certain amenities at the hotel, the parking, the phone, the uh, the gym, that they could charge that above what you've already bid on Priceline, which totally breaks the whole concept of Priceline where you're bidding on a price. And then in addition to the taxes and Priceline's own fees, that's what you pay. You shouldn't have to show up and pay more. The whole point of Priceline is that you prepay and you're done. So I remember in 2005, I came to a hotel in Arizona, and they wanted a resort fee, which was $7 a night, which sounds like a joke compared to today, where you see resort fees that are $30, $40, $50 a night, but still, it was $7 a night more than I had agreed to pay through Priceline. So I said no. They said, you have to pay it upon check-in. I said what is this even for? They told me the crap it was for. I said, that's okay. I won't use the pool. I won't use the gym. Um, and I'll park on the street. So I'm not paying the $7 a night. They said, you have to, to check in. I whipped out my laptop. I showed them that there's nothing in the terms, uh, that they emailed me, nothing that says I owe anything further and that therefore they have to honor it. Well, after, of course the front desk person, wasn't sophisticated enough to understand all this. So they just said, no, the rule is you have to pay it before you could check in. So I'd get a manager, the manager would back down and uh, let me off. Well, this trick worked for about two years, but but after about 07, these places got wise to it, and you would there would be fine print that... Uh, that you'll owe, you could possibly owe resort fees. On Priceline, they would put that. And uh, it was open-ended. The property could charge whatever it wanted. And uh, even if you booked directly and not through Priceline, you, they still would uh, put in the fine print, oh, you know, in addition to what you just booked, you're gonna, it's going to be such and such resort fee. So at that point, you couldn't use the, the you didn't notify me at the time excuse. And they always put it in the fine print when you're booking too online. So there was no, then it became a lot harder to get around it. Now resort fees are so common, they're, they're in just so many places, especially in, in Las Vegas now and other cities. Some cities are just infested with resort fees where every single place charges, it charges a resort fee. 
but they've morphed from something to squeeze extra money out of Priceline customers into something to mislead people into thinking they're getting a cheaper price than they are for the room when they do internet searches. And it becomes one of these situations where hotels feel that they have to also charge a resort fee in order to compete with the other properties that charge resort fees. Why? Well, let's look at this. Let's say that property A and property B are in the same city and they're equal. They're just as good as one another and they are charging the same price. Let's say they're both charging uh, $130 a night. Well, property A gets the idea, hey, instead of being 130 a night, why aren't we just 100 a night with the $30 resort fee? We still collect 130 but this way, when people search for hotels in the area, they see that our hotel, property A, is 100 and property B is 130 So people will pick ours, not realizing they were actually the same price because we charge a resort fee and they don't. They won't know. They won't really realize it until they get here, or even if they do realize it, uh, they probably won't even think of that. They'll just pick whatever they see first, or you know, it's in the fine print, so we're covered there. So that's the reason it exists. So what does property B do at that point? They go, hmm. We've noticed that ever since property A added a resort fee and then lowered their base price, that we're getting slaughtered by property A, that they're way busier than we are, where before we were about the same. Well, it must be because everyone searching online sees that they're cheaper when they're really not. Well, what's the only thing we can do? We'll have to do the same thing. Now we're $100 with a $30 resort fee, so now we'll show up in the same place. So that's why all the properties in markets where resort fees are common feel like they're forced to have resort fees. Now, Caesars at one point tried an ad campaign where they just said, we have no resort fees. And that was something they kept advertising, but they still found that that wasn't getting them enough business compared to the the internet search engines, which were showing the competitor properties first because they were falsely listed as cheaper. So what's the solution to all this? The solution to all of this is to make it illegal. Why? Because... It's hiding the price. The price you see online when you search should be the price you pay, other than government taxes. Government taxes are understandable because the property doesn't benefit from those, and it, and it applies to all properties in that market the same. So if they don't want to show the government taxes, fine. But anything that the hotel keeps should be disclosed up front to where it's totally clear to the consumer how much they're really paying. They shouldn't have to scan the fine print to figure out how much they're really paying. If you disagree with that, stop for a second and think, why? Why do you disagree? Why should it not be made clear to the consumer what they are really paying for a night to stay in that hotel? Why should it be hidden from them? Why should it be? Why should the cost be split up in certain ways where it's hard to find with the how much you're really paying? Why should you have to read the fine print to know how much you're really paying? Why? So that's the reason it's done. It's to, it's to mislead people about the price, and then to have them only find out the bad news once they get there. Or even if they know the bad news, there's still a psychological element to it. Let's say you know a place has a thirty dollars resort fee. You search for hotels and you see it's seventy dollars a night. You go, wow, that's that's pretty cheap. Seventy dollars, cool. Well, you know, in the back of their head, there's a $30 resort fee, but the 70 is just kind of eye-popping. You just see it go, wow, $70 a night. So you book it. Even if you know it in the back of your head, it's, it's still misleading. It's still not really showing you what the price is. The bottom line is just the truth should be shown. The truth should be out there. I always like to say, I always like to say that you should always know the cost of what you're buying 
you should always know what you're getting when you buy something. And the quality of what you're buying should be approximately up to expectations and what was marketed. If any of those things turn out not to be true, it's not your fault. You shouldn't blame yourself. You shouldn't eat it. You shouldn't say shit happens. You shouldn't say, well, that's that's the way business works. No. You got ripped off and you should seek ways to get your money back. So unfortunately, with, with resort fees, it's very hard to get your money back when that happens. But you shouldn't just accept it and say, oh, I, I should have read the fine print. Stupid me. No, they shouldn't be misleading you. They shouldn't be trying to trick you. Yes, you should also read the fine print. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But it's, number one, their fault for trying to trick you and successfully tricking you. It's only, number two, your fault for allowing yourself to be tricked that easily. So, yes, you should be more careful, but just because you weren't careful doesn't give them the right to rip you off. And a lot of people get that wrong. A lot of people think, oh, you know, if, if there was a way for a consumer to have prevented himself from getting ripped off, then uh, it's his fault. No. It's always the fault of the one who's ripping someone off. Look, if, if let's say in front of my house there's a little table, and I place $100,000 cash sitting on the table, and then uh, drive away. Okay? Let's say I just, I just put it there. And go, ah, I'm sure people around here are honest. They're not going to steal my $100,000 cash sitting on a table outside my house. And I drive away for three hours. And I come back. Oh, my God, it's gone. Someone took my $100,000 of cash that was right out there in plain sight with nobody home. Um, would I be stupid? Yes. Would I have deserved that to happen? No. Whose fault is it more? Mine for leaving it out there or someone who saw it for stealing it? It's definitely the criminal's fault for stealing my money. I was an idiot to let it happen and to be so careless with it and to be so stupidly trusting, but that does not excuse anyone who were to steal it. So you have to see business the same way when they do things to mislead you or cheat you, even if it's preventable in some way or something you should have known better that does not make it your fault and you shouldn't feel guilty for trying to get the money back, nor should you mock others for complaining about it. That's the only way that uh, these things stop is when people complain about it. Um, so that's a general little speech about resort fees that I've given before. So I'm happy to see that something's actually happening, and I don't know how successful this is going to be. But uh, there is an attempt to finally punish Hotels doing this because, uh, honestly, the Federal Trade Commission has failed. They should have made this illegal a long time ago, but they haven't. There's, there's no laws against this yet. There's been talk about it, but it just hasn't happened. But there's a class action lawsuit that's going on right now involving Reno hotels that charge a resort fee. A Pennsylvania law firm known as Berger and Montague is putting together a class action lawsuit. And it's against the hotels in Reno, which charge mandatory resort fees. This lawsuit is against Atlantis, Grand Sierra, Harris Reno, Nugget Casino Reno, Peppermill Reno, and Sands Regency Hotel. They have a website called resortfeecase.com that you can go to if you want to read about it. 
and if you want to add yourself as a member of the class. To be a member of the class, you had to have stayed at one of those hotels in the past two years and paid resort fees. I have not, so I wouldn't qualify. But if you have, if you've paid resort fees in Reno in the last two years, you should go to resortfeecase.com and enter your info. And they may go forward with this class action. They seem serious about it. They've got a website about it. They, you know, this is a real case. And it seems... uh, They're on their way of attempting to make it occur. So I don't know if this is actually going to go to court or lead to anything, but I hope it does, because when this starts hitting properties in the pocketbook, that is when they will change their ways, when it's either made illegal or when they start getting sued and losing for it. Then they will change. Until then, they won't change. Until then, it's going to be more of the same. In fact, it's getting worse and worse. It's getting where the resort fees are higher and higher, and you're getting misled more and more. There are properties in Vegas now where the resort fee is higher than the base price to stay there, where it's like $19 to stay there per night, but there's a $35 resort fee. That, that's super misleading. That's much worse when it's like a, than, than 30 or $300 a night with a $30 resort fee. At least that's only 10%. Still wrong, but it's only 10%. But imagine you think you're getting a hotel for $19, you get there and it's 55 That's a huge difference. But that's what's been happening. So I hope these succeed. They're also attempting one in Vegas, but it doesn't seem as far along. So there's no specific website. There's one page about this on the Burger and Montague webpage. But it really hasn't gone anywhere yet. They're still investigating, it seems. But they, they're going to go after every single casino in Vegas that charges resort fees. But again, you'll have to have paid resort fees. So as a Seven Stars member, I don't pay resort fees. So I would not, again, wouldn't be eligible to be a member of the class. But don't ever defend the practice of resort fees. Don't defend the practice and also don't misunderstand what it is. Don't think you're being charged for things you're not using. That's just an excuse of why they're charging it. You're just being misled about the real price. That's what's happening. It's just very simple. They are misleading you about the price. So when you search out the price on the internet, you will see a false price and book the hotel based upon that false price. That's what's happening. That is 100% what's happening. And Druff, you know, I I seem to remember that they started it out by giving you this optional thing that you could buy for like twenty five bucks, where you'd get the internet, the gym, a couple of other things. I but I thought it was optional when I, it started. It, it, there were some places where it was like that, where there was a resort fee, but you could opt out of it, and then you would just not have access to those other things. But most yeah, places, I think the Bellagio had that. Yeah, most places, most places just hit you with a mandatory charge. I, as I said, I ran into that first in April 2005, uh, which they mainly added that because they had a lot of Priceline customers that place. 
So it really started out as a way to extract extra money out of Priceline customers, and then it evolved. So it's just very simple. Anything that's meant to hide the true price of something should never be allowed. That's that's a great rule of thumb that should be followed for all consumer issues. Well, along those same lines, but not about hotels, there was a tournament in Texas where definitely the price of the tournament uh, wasn't what they represented it to be. Now, you have to understand, Texas doesn't have a lot of freedom as far as uh, playing poker. Texas uh, is still kind of behind with that. They've they've always been kind of anti-gambling over there. So Texas has no actual casinos, nor do they have any actual poker rooms. So you're not going to have like a commerce casino type thing in Texas. The only way legal poker can be run in Texas is through what's known as private clubs. And the private clubs are charging you membership fees. And they will also sometimes charge some kind of fee to... you know, to, to to rent the room, to you know, to to rent the seat, whatever. It's they, what what they they can't rake pots over there, so that's that's the way they have to do it. They have to do these flat fees, which mimic rake in some way. So there's a group of card rooms in Texas that are known as Social Card Clubs of Texas. That's the name of the company, Social Card Clubs of Texas. They currently charge a $100 annual membership fee, first of all. So you have to pay that to even be able to walk in. But then when they hold tournaments, uh, obviously they have to collect a house fee in some way there. Otherwise, it's not worth holding those. So the way they do the tournaments there is is with uh, some kind of seat fee or whatever. But they find other ways to squeeze charges into it to where the rake is much higher than it appears. So they, they're they holding a, a tournament in, uh, I don't know if it's over. It may already be over. It may be in process. It started in, I think, early December. It's a, a multi-venue $250,000 guarantee tournament that you can play in one of four locations, Austin, Houston, Killeen, or San Antonio. I think it started on like December 2nd. So you can play at day one in any of those four locations, and then they all come together for day two after that. So the buy-in was $350, 300 plus 50. Now, 300 plus 50 isn't that bad. It's a 14.3% rake for, for that level of tournament. It's not cheap, but it's not, uh, it's not terrible. And you would get 12,000 in tournament chips. However, the trick comes in, trick number one comes in, shall I say, that you can get another 12K in tournament chips, start with a double stack for just $100 more. So, of course, most people are going to do that. If you're paying $350 to get 12K in chips, you might as well pay $450 and get 24K in chips, right? Well, that, that type of thing is common uh, to see. Uh, it doesn't happen in most places, but I've seen it before. But here's what is really, really shady. One of several things that's shady. The additional 100 you pay to get that 12k in chips how much of that do you think goes into the prize pool i'll give you a hint zero 
point zero. Yes, the entire hundred is kept by the card room. Now, how can they do this? How can they keep that last hundred for themselves? If it's three hundred plus fifty, and then you get another twelve k chips for another hundred, how do they just keep that last hundred for themselves? Well, it's because the last hundred is not a buy-in. The last hundred is a donation to charity. And what is the charity? The charity is Social Card Clubs of Texas Education and Advocacy Efforts. (laughs) Yes, you're giving it to them to advocate for themselves and their legality. It's their lobbying group. You're, you're, the charity is their lobbying group to lobby for their own poker room. <laughs> That's obviously no charity. And it's equivalent to another $100 rake. So you're, uh, basically, yeah, we need to re- lobby for ourselves to make the laws more favorable for us to do business. Uh, we'll call ourselves a charity. We'll call our, our lobbying efforts a charity. And we're the recipients of it. So that's already shady. So really, the 300 plus 50 tournament is really 300 plus 150. Yes, you can refuse to pay that 100, but then you start with half the stack of everybody else, and that's uh, big-time negative EV. So almost everybody pays that 100. Really, really shady to do that. But that's not even the reason we're talking about all this. They were advertising an overlay on the final day of day one. Remember, there are four different day ones. The final day of day one was uh, December 2nd. They were advertising through text messages that there's an overlay. So they're basically saying, uh, get down here to any of these four venues because uh, there's an overlay right now. So some people ran down there knowing there was an overlay on that 250000 tournament with 100 k guaranteed to first place. People ran down there knowing there's an overlay. Well, that didn't get enough people down there, though. They still had an overlay. So what did they do? They added one more starting day on December 7th. Yep. Anything to avoid that overlay. So that I, I hate when tournaments do that. I hate when they do that. And... The problem was I actually saw people defending this. Someone brought this up on, on – uh, some guy made a new account on Poker Fraud Alert, some guy named Barley. I don't know who that is, but um, he made an account – actually, I guess he's had this – I guess this Barley guy has been around for two years, but he just hadn't posted before. But he posted this whole story, and people were defending it, saying, well, you know, you, you know about this at the time you start playing. Or uh, – Look, you know, they just say it's guaranteed, so so if they want to add flights, that's the way it goes. They they have a right to do that. All they're guaranteeing is is that that's that the prize pool is going to be that big, not how they get there. But I disagree. The whole point of a guarantee in poker tournaments is to entice people to come down there knowing that number 1, the prize pool will be a certain level and number 2, that even if they don't get very good participation in the tournament, that it will still be that level. And that there will be this overlay and that it will be positive expectation for the player, even an average player. So it entices people to come down thinking, hey, I should play this. I like guarantee sometimes there's an overlay. Sometimes the prize pool is bigger than it should be. But if the card room finds ways to avoid there ever being an overlay by just repeatedly adding starting days until they can make the overlay go away, then that's going against the whole concept of what an overlay is. 
And people say, well, but why should the card room take so much risk? What if they get bad turnout? Why should they lose this much money? They, they, they're a business. Why shouldn't they make money? And I said, look, they're not forced to run a guaranteed tournament. If you cannot afford the risk of an overlay, then don't run a guaranteed tournament. Just run a regular tournament. Then you're guaranteed to make money. Then there can't be an overlay. If you want to market that you have a guarantee, then you need to accept an overlay without adding flights, without any shenanigans. And if you're scared of the overlay, don't run one. It's that simple. This is not too different than the situation that occurred in Vegas at the Westgate. Now, the LVH, I think. Sorry, it's it's the Westgate now. Uh, Where they uh, were advertising you can come down and buy in for half price once they knew they had an overlay. Again, very unethical. We talked about that before. This really needs to stop, and people need to stop accepting it. People need to say, "Look, you're you're ripping us off. We're not uh, we're not allowing this." This also happened at uh, Gardens Casino in Hawaiian Gardens not too long ago. But players should not stand for this. Players should call this out for the fraud that it is and boycott the place until they stop doing this type of stuff. Don't make excuses for it. Even in Texas, where the poker's kind of funny, still very wrong. And as far as the buy-in, that $100 that they keep, I mean, I guess if you're very aware of the whole thing and you still want to pay the 33% rake, fine, but that needs to be very, very, very clearly disclosed what they mean by 100 for charity, that it's their charity to lobby for themselves. Or, again, you're being ripped off. You're being tricked. Once again, it all comes down to when you went to purchase the goods or service being sold to you. Were you aware of these things? Should you have been aware? Was it made obvious and clear to you? Or were these things being hidden because they would look bad? If things are being hidden from you, you are being dealt with dishonestly. And you have a right to be mad. Too many people that make excuses for shady businesses, shady card rooms, blaming the customer. No. Everything should be clear. You should always know what you're buying, how much it costs, When you enter a tournament, you should know all the terms. You should know very clearly just from looking immediately at the the flyer about it, how much it costs to enter, how much the house is keeping, how much is going as a tip to the, uh, the staff. No hidden costs, no hidden tricks, no adding flights to, to avoid overlays, none of that crap. If that happens, you're being ripped off. So watch out for Social Card Clubs of Texas. I know you don't have a lot of choice over there, but watch out for them. They're clearly uh, not to be trusted. Well, you would think if you had to picture who you could trust, that two old Catholic nuns would be pretty high on the list. Could you ever expect... uh, two old Catholic nuns to steal? Would would you picture them doing that? I wouldn't. You would think that anyone who's devoted themselves to uh, the church for that long and got to that age, that uh, they're probably pretty trustworthy women. Well, it turns out uh, that's not necessarily true. Very surprising scandal out of Torrance, California that uh, has just been reported. 
two elderly nuns who worked at a Catholic school in the Los Angeles area embezzled $500,000 from the school so they could go to Las Vegas and be gambling degenerates. Yeah. Very, very surprising story. This is what happened. There were two nuns at a school called St. James Catholic School in Torrance, California. Torrance actually happens to be very close to where I grew up, by the way. I'm not Catholic, and I wasn't really familiar with that school. In fact, maybe it didn't even exist. No, it did exist when I was a kid. I see that, but I hadn't heard of it. But anyway, St. James Catholic School had two nuns that had worked there for a very long time. Mary Margaret Kruper was the school principal ever since uh, 1990. And Lana Chang was a teacher at the school since 1998. These are both older women, if you could take a look at their picture. Over a period of the last 10 years or so, maybe even more, they embezzled at least $500,000 from the school in order to go to Vegas and gamble. <laughs> so, <laughs> nuns were stealing from the Catholic school. If you look at the pictures here, especially the the white one, Mary Margaret Cooper, uh the first thing you think is that they're lesbians. Mary Margaret Cooper looks like an old lesbian, and... Uh, Lana Chang, I think she kind of looks like one mainly because she's right next to Mary Margaret Cooper, who's a very close friend of hers. And it's possible they are. Uh, the Catholic Church has a lot of problems. And if there's Catholic listeners out there, you know, if I'm offending you, then so be it. But you probably know about these things. Uh one of the biggest problems, in fact, the biggest problem the Catholic Church has is the issue with male Catholic priests molesting young boys. And this has gone on for a very long time. And it seems to me that the reason this happens so often, and the Catholic Church does a lot to cover it up when it happens, that's the worst part. They, uh, they not only cover it up, but they don't even completely disassociate themselves with these priests. They kind of just shuffle them around, and sometimes they'll move them to a different church, sometimes they'll uh, uh, just give them a different position or, 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 or make them retire and then, and then pay for their retirement. They, they don't just boot them, which they should. They try as hard as they can to cover it up. There's been exposés about this for, for decades. But uh, I think the reason this happens as often as it does is because of the priests having to take this vow of celibacy. So if you think about the days before very recently when it was not considered socially acceptable to be gay, being a priest who would take a vow not to have sex with women, that could be appealing to a gay man who wants to remain in the closet. So he doesn't have to answer questions like, why don't you have a girlfriend? Why aren't you getting married? Things like that. He's got an answer. Well, I'm a priest. I'm supposed to be celibate. So I think that 
a lot of gay men who weren't ready to come out and didn't want to be known as gay, didn't want to disappoint their family, whatever it was, uh, this was a very convenient cover for them. But of course, they would still have sexual urges. And some of them, the less scrupulous of them, would act out those urges on boys, which, of course, is terrible, and they should go to prison for life for that and never be let out. But that's what some of them did, because they they, they felt they had no sexual outlet, and uh, that's the way they did it. Whereas, uh, if it were not for the vow of celibacy, then... Uh, it would be a completely different story. And then I also think that uh, it might attract more uh, heterosexual priests who you know, would do it if not for that problem. Now, of course, it's, it, the celibacy is supposed to be for both straight and gay sex. So, but the thing is that uh, I think a lot of them, a lot of the priests were gay just because it gave them an excuse not to be dating women. Nowadays, it's probably somewhat less of a problem because it's much more socially acceptable to be gay, but that doesn't mean everybody wants to come out as gay. There's still a lot of people in the closet. There's still a lot of people who don't want uh, hassle from their families over it. So it still probably attracts more gay men. And also, unfortunately, they do have a lot of contact with, with young boys and teenage boys. And the gay pedophiles, uh, they recognize that as well as, well, as an opportunity to have contact with, with children. And that's what uh, pedophiles look for. They look for opportunities where they can interact with children. Uh, like, think about, but before I had Benjamin, for many years as an adult, I didn't have opportunity to interact with children, uh, even if I wanted it. So if I were a pedophile, I would have had a hard time coming up with an excuse to be around children. So... A lot of times pedophiles will look for things that will give them an excuse to be around children. That's what like Jerry Sandusky did with his uh, charity for boys. So that's uh, that's also what was attracting some of these priests. But if you look at the, uh, getting back to the nuns, uh, I think it's also possible that women might be attracted to the, to being nuns for the same reason. Not not to molest anyone. Women very rarely molest children, which which is good. It's good that uh, women don't seem to have those urges. It seems to be uh, very very uncommon with women. But still, I, I could see where, especially decades ago, where women who were lesbians that didn't want to come out as lesbian and didn't want to have to answer questions about why they're not getting married or, or dating men, uh, just become a nun, and then. They can engage in uh, lesbian relationships on the down low with other nuns who were there for the same reason. So that might be what's happening here. These two women are very close. One of them looks a lot like a lesbian. The other one, it's kind of hard to tell. But they are both old and sometimes just older women. They kind of take on that look when they're really not just because they cut their hair short and they just... Uh, it's a lot harder to tell with very old women whether they're lesbians or not. So anyway, putting that aside, regardless of whether they're secret lesbians, the, the more interesting story, the more interesting part is that these old 
nuns were, were stealing money from the Catholic school and blowing it in Vegas. And could you imagine you see, you see these two women playing in Vegas, uh, sitting at the blackjack table, chunking off money? Uh, would you ever picture, especially if you heard they were nuns, that they embezzled this money? I always wonder when I'm at poker rooms and I'm playing against people where some of that money comes from. I always wonder if I'm playing against people who are buying buying in with drug money or scammed money or stolen money or embezzled money. Like, I always wonder what money I'm playing against. I'm, I'm sure I've won a lot of that type of money before. There's been certain people at Commerce I would have been surprised if they acquired their money legally. For some reason, the embezzlement to gamble story seems to happen more often with women than men. And I've seen no studies to back this up. But it seems whenever I read these stories about someone embezzling from a business to go gamble, it seems it's very frequently women. I've seen it with men before, but I see it more often with women. With men, I see more just the outright scamming to gamble. So, I'll see, you know, we talk about male scammers all the time on this show. And men seem more likely to just concoct these outright scams, to just outright steal from people, and then use the money to gamble. That's very common. But when it comes to embezzlement from their job, it seems like, it seems like I see it occur with women more often. I don't know why. Maybe it's just been what I've been seeing, but over the years, that's just time after time after time, I, I hear you know two employees bezeled for or one employee. It's usually one person, but an employee embezzles to go gamble in Vegas. I look, yep, it's a woman again. I think there might be something to that. I think there may be some inherent difference between the sexes to where the for those that that want to steal to fund a gambling problem, that women turn towards embezzlement and men turn towards outright scamming or outright theft. But I, I, I don't recall a more surprising two criminals embezzling to gamble or stealing to gamble than two nuns. I don't think I'll ever come up with something more surprising than that. Okay, we're past midnight here. You still with us, Trader Ruski? Did we lose Trader Ruski? We just lost him. He's gone, I think. Well, we don't have that much longer. We only have uh, two more topics. We have some older listeners to this show who will probably remember this entire situation. The average listener here may not... Because this is a story from the 1970s. And the reason I'm talking about it now is because the main character in the story has passed away. Melvin Dumar is perhaps the most famous forger of modern times. Definitely the most famous will forger. Melvin Dumar forged a will from 
tycoon Howard Hughes shortly after Hughes died in 1976. And it was a very interesting story. In 1976, I was four years old, so I'll admit that I didn't pay attention to this. I'm, I'm sure this was on the news as my parents were watching. My parents may have talked about it in the background, but uh, I didn't pay attention. I don't think many four-year-olds would be interested in this. But it is an interesting story, and Melvin Dumar just died, so that's why I'm bringing it up. And if you haven't heard about this before, I think you're going to find it uh, pretty entertaining. So here's what happened. Melvin Dumar was working at a gas station in 1967. He was 23 years old. For some reason, he was driving on US-95 in the middle of nowhere about 150 miles north of Las Vegas. He worked in Utah, so I don't even know what he was doing over there. But he was driving on US-95, a little bit south of Goldfield, Nevada, which is a ghost town. Also south of uh, a little further south of Tonopah, which is not a ghost, ghost town, but in that area. You'd be passing these towns if you drove between Vegas and Reno. But it's really not close to anything of any consequence. So he's driving in the middle of nowhere, a little bit south of Goldfield, and he saw a man lying down, face down, on the side of the highway. So uh, this is Dumar's claim. This hasn't been verified, but he cl- claimed in 1967 this happened. He was 23 years old. So he stopped, checked on the man. The man was conscious and uh, able to get up and uh, talk to him. The man said that uh, he needed to be taken to the Sands Hotel, which is now the Venetian, in Las Vegas. And Dumar agreed to do it. So the drive was about two hours, and they talked a little bit, but uh, only near the very, very end of the drive did the man reveal himself to be eccentric tycoon Howard Hughes. Very, very, very rich man, one of the richest men on earth at the time. Very, very strange guy who got stranger as he got older. And uh, so he said, hey, you know, by the way, I'm Howard Hughes. <laughs> and he was really disheveled. And Dumar claims he was very surprised that of all people to be lying there on I-95 in need of rescuing, it was uh, Howard Hughes. So he claimed he dropped... Hughes off at the Sands and that was that. Never heard from him and that was that. Howard Hughes died nine years later in April 1976 and very shortly after that a handwritten will was found in the Mormon headquarters in Salt Lake City. The will was was signed by Howard Hughes. It was his will supposedly and it was dated 1968. It left Howard Hughes' fortune to various people and entities. Most relevant here, one-sixteenth of the estate was to go to the Mormon church, and one-sixteenth of the estate was to go to Melvin Dumar. The remaining seven-eighths was to go to other people and organizations, which I I won't bother getting into. What was one-sixteenth of the estate worth? Well, remember, Howard Hughes was a a very rich guy. So 
How much was that worth? $100 billion. No, no. Uh, it was worth uh, $156 million. $156 million each to the Mormon church, Melvin Dumar, and that only represented uh, one-sixteenth each of the estate. There's still seven-eighths more of the uh, estate to be distributed. Now, this will was supposedly written in uh, in 1968, but uh, unearthed at the Mormon headquarters in Salt Lake City in 1976, right after uh, Hughes died. I'm not sure why the eight-year delay. Uh, in case you're wondering what that would have made his estate be worth, it would be worth about $2.5 billion, which at the time... It was worth, uh, you know, in today's money, that's probably about $13 billion. So this will became known as the Mormon will. And the question on everyone's mind, was it real or was it a forgery? There were several suspicious elements to this will. One of them was that one-sixteenth of the estate was left to the Mormon church because Howard Hughes was not Mormon. He did have a number of Mormon employees, but he was not Mormon himself. So why would he leave to the Mormon church uh, one-sixteenth of his estate? Also, it was very suspicious that he would leave one-sixteenth of his estate to Melvin Dumar especially after not really having any contact with him for all those years, after supposedly being rescued, which may not have even really happened. There were some other problems with the will. It was full of misspellings, some very basic misspellings, like the word fourth. You know, one-fourth, it was spelled F-O-R-T-H in the will. In case you think maybe that was uh, an inadvertent misspelling, but uh, he didn't mean to misspell that, there were many other basic misspellings such as divided was spelled D-E-V-I-D-E-D and that happened more than uh, several times in the will so it was not just a one-time mistake Uh, companies instead of being spelled C-O-M-P-A-N-I-E-S it was spelled C-O-M-P-A-N-Y apostrophe S So, very basic mistakes like this. It looked like it was written by someone who was rather uneducated. And Howard Hughes did not have this problem. Howard Hughes uh, was known to write fairly well, so he wouldn't have made these basic mistakes. Uh, For those of you who have seen my posts on the internet, uh, if I had a will with all these types of misspellings and grammatical mistakes, would you believe that I wrote it? No, you'd be sure it was a forgery. Well, same thing here. So that that was very, very suspicious. Howard Hughes also owned a famous flying boat, which got to be known as the Spruce Goose. It was even on display in uh, Long Beach, California for a while after uh, Howard Hughes' death. But something that a lot of people didn't know was that Howard Hughes did not like that name for it. That was not a name he gave it. It was a name that he found derisive. He found that someone else gave it that name. He resented that it was referred to that way. And whenever people called it that flying boat, the Spruce Goose, it pissed him off. Well, in the will, it refers to that flying boat as the Spruce Goose, which 
he would have never written. Also, there were there was money left in the will to his ex-wives, two of his ex-wives, yet Howard Hughes made a big deal in his uh, settlement, in his alimony agreement settlement for those wives, that they would not have any right to any of his money when he, were to, when he would die, that he would, uh, they would not get any, any inheritance from him. That was written specifically into the alimony settlement, so why would he do that and then leave the money anyway? So this will seem to be a forgery for many reasons, written by someone who didn't know Howard all that well, and prime suspect was Melvin Dumar, because he was the only one who really, really made no sense as far as individuals to gain from this. The two that made the least sense were uh, were the Mormon Church and Melvin Dumar. Melvin Dumar met him once, supposedly in 1967, and the Mormon Church, a religion that he was not part of. And it was the Mormon Church that... that uh, unearthed this letter in 1976, shortly after he died. A subsequent investigation found that Melvin Dumar's fingerprint was on the envelope that this will was in. When they had previously asked Dumar if he knew about this will, he said, no, I had no idea this existed. This is news to me that I'm getting a 16th of this. I didn't know there's any will. Then they asked him later, well, if you didn't know the will existed, how come your fingerprint is on the envelope it came in? <laughs> His claim then was that a well-dressed man showed up to the gas station that he worked at in 1968 and told him to that he represented Howard Hughes and to bring this letter over to the Mormon church, which he claimed that he did. Anyway, nobody was convinced by this. It was decided by the courts in 1978 in Nevada, that it was a forgery and Dumar received nothing and he never got a penny from Howard Hughes' uh, estate. The story kind of got revived in 2005, which was 27 years later, when a retired FBI agent released a book regarding the will. And in that book, the retired FBI agent stated that there was evidence that Dumar had actually found Hughes face down on US 95 in 1967. Among other things, he claimed that he interviewed several employees at the Sands who worked there in December 1967 and that they remembered that Howard Hughes stumbled in there looking very disheveled and had said that he was rescued by a young man who found him face down in the desert. Also, apparently, Howard Hughes had interest in mines located in that area and also frequented a brothel fairly close to where Dumar said he found Hughes face down. That's what this FBI agent uh, claimed in 2005 in a book. I don't know if this is all true, but this is what the ex-FBI agent claimed. I think it might actually be possible that Dumar really did pick up Howard Hughes in 1967, and maybe that part of the story is true. Maybe Howard Hughes just was on a bender and whatever ended up over... Uh, Ended up face down on the highway and was found there and then told Dumar just you know shortly before he dropped him off. And uh, maybe Dumar was a little bit resentful that after rescuing such a rich guy that he never got anything out of it. And maybe he came up with a scheme after Howard Hughes died saying, you know what? 
That guy really owed me nine years ago, and I never got shit for it. Well, I have a way to get something. Now, the signature on the will was one thing that was done pretty well. The signature looked fairly authentic. So that was one thing that confused some people. How, why was the will so terrible? Why, why was it written so poorly? But, but the signature looked pretty good. And an explanation was found for that, that Dumars' wife worked for a magazine that, uh, I think it was called Millionaire, it was something about rich people, and they wrote about Hughes a lot, and they had access to a lot of his uh, memos, and apparently some of these memos had his signature on it. So she had access to a lot of signatures that Hughes had done. So they probably just copied one of those signatures, and that's why it looked so good. So I think that Dumar probably wrote the will himself, and uh, I'm not sure how he got it over to the Mormon church. He probably just went over there and uh, dropped it on a desk somewhere where nobody was looking and knew they'd find it and that they'd take interest in it because they were mentioned as a beneficiary of it. And he knew that they'd probably go to bat in claiming it was real because they would gain $156 million out of it. He left only one-sixteenth for himself, probably because he figured that was the most he could leave himself without arousing suspicion that he was the one behind it. You know, if it was leaving everything to him, then nobody would believe it. So he probably just left a sixteenth to himself, gave fifteenth, sixteenth to everybody else that that, uh, that he just named there, probably just stuff he figured that uh, would be believable, such as the Boy Scouts, such as uh, some hospitals, such as uh, uh, a cousin of uh, Howard Hughes, whose name is was misspelled also, uh, the church, Hope nobody would point the finger back at him. After this book by the retired FBI agent revived interest in the whole situation, Dumar made one last attempt to fight this out by filing a lawsuit against the actual heirs. But this was dismissed in 2007, at which point Dumar gave up for good. But he always asserted that he was telling the truth, that the that he was not behind this will and that he really did pick up Howard Hughes face down on US 95 in 1967. So he died of cancer at the age of 74 and he was in Pahrump, Nevada when he died. Pahrump is about an hour northwest of Las Vegas. You will pass through it if you're on the way to Death Valley from Las Vegas between Vegas and Death Valley. Pahrump is best known for its lax gun laws and its legalized prostitution. Prostitution is not legal in Clark County, where Las Vegas is located, but uh, Pahrump is in a different county where prostitution is legal, but they do have to be legalized brothels for it to be legal. John Commode, a radio listener and forum poster, pointed out that there actually was a movie that was made based upon this whole story called Melvin and Howard. And Jason Robards played Howard Hughes in that movie. He said it was an okay movie. Paul Lamatt played Melvin. And he said, quote, 
had a lot of artistic license, so it, they didn't tell the exact story. But if you want to see a dramatization of this, you can uh, rent or download Melvin and Howard and see it. It's an interesting story. I, I actually may do it at this point because it, it, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> the whole thing went down. And that was a, a big controversy at the time in the mid to late 70s. And since our audience is getting older and older, I bet some of you probably remember it. I had heard about this controversy, but not until well after it occurred. I didn't pay attention to this in the 70s. Finally, I'd like to talk about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I know some of you don't like crypto discussion on this show, which is why I'm leaving it to the very end. This is our final topic. But there, there is enough happening in the last few weeks that I, I think it's worth talking about. I know I've said many times before that I think uh, the cryptocurrencies as we know them are on their way out only to look stupid when they appreciate wildly in value and anyone who is smart enough to ignore me made a lot of money. But I think this time might really be it. Not permanently for cryptocurrencies, but for the cryptocurrencies that we know. Since mid-November, Bitcoin fell from what was a surprisingly stable value of the low 6,000s per coin to the 3,300, 3,400 per coin range. A very big uh, decline, obviously. Ethereum fell even more. That's only trading for $88 each. Bitcoin Cash is a whole mess in itself. It actually split on November 15th, the same way Bitcoin originally split into Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. And that's become a big mess. That's Even if you combine the two parts that have split now, it's worth uh, only $180 per coin. So it's not just a matter that Bitcoin has fallen, and it's not just a matter that all cryptocurrencies have fallen in the last few weeks. It's a matter that the entire 2018 has been a freaking disaster for the value of cryptocurrencies. It doesn't matter which one you were collecting, you've lost money on it. If you held any crypto in 2018, you lost a lot of money. That's a fact. And now it's actually gotten to the point where mining Bitcoin costs more than it's worth, so... Miners are giving up. Miners are, are abandoning their equipment. There's Chinese miners who are just abandoning their computer equipment. Just stacks of computers that are used for Bitcoin mining are just on the street now because they don't need or want them anymore. It's not worth doing. So what's happening? Why, why is it falling? Why is it crashing? And why am I saying that now really is kind of the end for current cryptocurrency? And what do I mean by current cryptocurrency? By current cryptocurrency, I mean any cryptocurrency you know of today. Every cryptocurrency you know of right now is not going to be the future. It's not. When they will go down to zero or near zero, I don't know, but th- those that's not going to be the future. In 50 years, maybe even 10 years, maybe even five years, people will look back on now and laugh at the various coin that are out there. 
They will laugh at it the same way you laugh now at Betamax video that people would uh, record TV with back in the early 80s. That's the way they will laugh at the current cryptocurrencies. I always felt that the current cryptocurrencies were a good idea, but very immature. Not immature like kid stuff, but I mean immature like not developed. Like not ready for mass use. Eventually, we may see cryptocurrencies backed by major governments. And I don't mean the scam ones that uh, countries in trouble are, are propping up like Venezuela, but I mean like the United States or other first world countries may eventually have a cryptocurrency that is backed by the country and is uh, more stable in value. I think that might be the future of cryptocurrency. But it's definitely not what we have right now. My former radio and forum partner, Brian Mikon, uh, he has been into this from almost the very start. He got into Bitcoin in 2011. Early 2011, the Bitcoin were worth like $5 each. He introduced me to them before I knew what they were, and I dismissed it. I called it a cute little science project. I didn't think it would even go anywhere. Mikon, who had a lot of harebrained and weird ideas over the years, ended up looking like a genius for being on the ground floor of Bitcoin. And for that reason, and because he ran a Bitcoin poker site and was very vocal about Bitcoin and because he already had somewhat of a platform to be listened to because of his semi-notoriety in poker, and because he became somewhat of a martyr because he got busted for running the Bitcoin poker site. All these reasons together. Uh, he also kind of stole my act and uh, was representing himself as kind of the fraud and scam buster of the Bitcoin world. So he actually got some degree of respect from a lot of people in the Bitcoin community. And he really enjoyed that. That was that was exactly what he wanted. And there's been a lot of speculation that Mikon, who's been perpetually broke for most of his life, is he super rich now? If he was at the ground floor of Bitcoin or near the ground floor, shouldn't he be balling out of control? And there's been a lot of debates like this, and we've discussed that on the show before, and I, I don't even know the answer. I, I can think of reasons why he would be or would, would not be. But from observing his behavior in the last year, I noticed something, and it was interesting. First of all, he made a very accurate statement almost exactly a year ago. On December 27th, he tweeted that the public's going to get wrecked in 2018 with crypto. Well, that's true. They did. The public did get wrecked in 2018. That's exactly what happened. 
He wrote this about two weeks after Bitcoin had lost about 25% of its value from its high of 19,800. It was at about 14,700 when he wrote that the public's going to get wrecked. But he wasn't just talking about Bitcoin. He was referring to Ripple, which was then a very trendy cryptocurrency. He was talking about Ethereum, which was a trendy cryptocurrency. He was talking about uh, BitConnect, another trendy cryptocurrency at the time. He was observing that the public was getting interested now in these trendy cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin wasn't that cool anymore. And now they're investing in that and they're asking him how to do it. And he's like, oh my God, if the public's getting into this now, the, the whole thing's going to crash down. Those weren't his words, but he wrote, the public going to get wrecked in 2018 with crypto. Well, he's right. They did. I'll give him credit. He, he called that right. Now, yes, th- he didn't call it at the peak. He called it uh, after it had fallen about 25% off the peak in two weeks. So that was reason for alarm. But keep in mind, before that, whenever the Bitcoin would have crashes like that, he would say, you know, calm down. Don't worry. It's just a bump in the road. It's going to go back up. You've got to look at long term. He wasn't saying that this time. He was he was saying in December of 2017, the public's going to get wrecked with crypto in 2018. So did that mean that Brian Mikon was selling all of his cryptocurrencies and cashing out, which not at the high, but still way higher than it is now, still pretty damn high compared to most other times that uh, anyone would have gotten into crypto? He would have made a fortune if he cashed out right at that moment. Is it possible that's what he did? Well, I guess it's possible, but I don't believe that's what he did. Even though he was right about what was coming. Micon was very, very high on something called Bitcoin Cash. And let me tell you about Bitcoin Cash. There was... uh, A lot of infighting within the powers that be of the Bitcoin community. And this was holding back, to some degree, the success of Bitcoin. One of the very loud and influential voices in Bitcoin, who had been there since the beginning, was a guy named Roger Ver. And Roger Ver felt that Bitcoin needed to be modified in order to work better to be transactional. Transactional means to be used for transactions. So you can buy things with it. So you can spend money online on online stores and merchants can receive it. And he, he felt for Bitcoin to be useful as a transactional currency that they need to increase the block size. And then there were others who felt that uh, Bitcoin should stay the way it is. It shouldn't become transactional. It should be more of a, a store of value, not as a way to buy things for 10 bucks on the internet. So there was a big philosophical split on this. Well, Micon was very, very much on the side of Roger Ver. Micon has always been more into the philosophy of Bitcoin than the riches it generates, which might surprise you, but he always believed that he was on the ground floor of something that was changing the world. The fact that he was making money from it was great too, and he loved that, but he loved the idea that he was part of something 
that had no connection to any government, could be used to fight oppression, could be used to hold money the government can't touch. Kind of a, a revolution for the people. My kind was kind of a left-wing slash anarchist activist type, and while he was usually too lazy to do too much activism, as far as Bitcoin was concerned, he thought that was what he's been waiting for. That's that's the cause he wants to get behind. And it was profitable for him, too. And he ran a, ran a poker room based on it. So... It was bothering him that Bitcoin was not getting widely adopted by merchants online, that it just it just wasn't all that useful for just spending money on a day-to-day basis. And he very much loved Roger Ver's vision that it should be. He and Roger Ver became friends. In February 2018, a picture was tweeted, not by MyCon, but of MyCon, someone else tweeted it, of MyCon on a private plane flying between Caribbean islands. Turned out uh, that was Roger Ver's plane. He was a guest of Roger's on that plane. They were going to a conference together. Well, the problems between Roger Ver and his supporters versus the others in Bitcoin who were influential at the time caused a split of Bitcoin in August of 2017. And that created something called Bitcoin Cash. Now what that split did was made basically two Bitcoins out of one. So whatever Bitcoin you held on the day that split happened You then, you then had uh, it, it, one Bitcoin and bit, one Bitcoin Cash for each Bitcoin you, you you had. So, the initial thing you'd say about that is, "Oh, great! I have doubled the Bitcoin. I have doubled the value." Right? Well, people were a little worried that that would be reflected in the price of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. That yes, you may have one of each now instead of just one, but uh, if the prices go down to accommodate that, then maybe your overall value will still be the same or maybe worse. But that didn't happen. Bitcoin Cash uh, did quite well from that point, and Bitcoin continued to go up. So they, they didn't go down, they went up. So they split, you got some extra value in your Bitcoin Cash, which you didn't have before. You just get this free Bitcoin Cash equivalent to whatever Bitcoin you held on the day of the split, which is called a hard fork. So and then the Bitcoin Cash went up too, if you held on to it. That was very nice. In fact, if you believed in Bitcoin Cash, you could just sell your remaining Bitcoin and trade it in for Bitcoin Cash. And that is what I think Micon did after August 1st, 2017, when the split occurred. Because Micon was very, very, very much in the camp of Roger Ver. He believed in Roger Ver. And I think Mike probably put his money where his mouth was. And I think he probably, this is just my guess, I think he probably moved most of his crypto holdings into Bitcoin Cash. At the time, that was fine because Bitcoin Cash was appreciating very much just like Bitcoin was. Well, 
What happens when you take a person who is very opinionated, very prone to controversy, very prone to arguing with people? I know you might be thinking about me, but I'm, I'm talking about Roger Ver. What happens when you take a person like that and they're in charge now of something else? Or if they're one of the people in charge now. If they, they split off from the original people they were fighting with. Now they're in charge of the thing they split off with. Does that mean they'll live happily ever after? Usually not. That usually means they're going to fight again down the line with the new people they're associated with. So that's exactly what happened. Bitcoin Cash did not live happily ever after. Instead, another two factions developed within Bitcoin Cash. Roger Ver and... Jihan Wu, another influential person at the time, wanted to keep the block size at 32 megabytes. And Calvin Ayer and Craig Stephen Wright, Craig Stephen Wright, by the way, claimed to be the Bitcoin creator, Satoshi Nakamoto, but a lot of people don't believe that. But anyway, Calvin Ayer and Craig Stephen Wright, who were originally on Ver's side and very pro-Bitcoin cash, they wanted to increase the block size even further to 128 megabytes, and there was a big fight. So now, now Roger Ver didn't want to increase the block size, and the other side did. It was the reverse, except now the other side were different people. It was Calvin Error and, uh, and Craig Stephen Wright. So a lot of infighting, and they said, well, what did we do last time there was infighting within Bitcoin? A hard fork. Let's just let's split off Bitcoin Cash now. Worked fine last time when we split Bitcoin into Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, why don't we just make two Bitcoin Cash and we'll each go our own way and whichever one is accepted by the people more will be the one that survives. Or maybe they'll both survive. So on November 15th, 2018, about a month ago, Bitcoin Cash then split. They had a hard fork. Creating Bitcoin Cash ABC, that was uh, Roger Ver's version of it, and Bitcoin Cash SV, which was Calvin Ayer's version of it. He has the same Calvin Ayer who founded Bodog. Unfortunately, this hard fork ended up being a disaster. And it pretty much put the nail in the coffin of the viability of Bitcoin Cash. Cryptocurrency experts who've been analyzing this have said that it was a failure, a disaster, and it destroyed Bitcoin Cash. This, this hard fork was very ill-advised. Value-wise, it has not gone well at all. On November 14th, the day before this split, Bitcoin Cash was trading at 425 per coin, far, far below the thousands it traded for at its peak, but still a lot better than today. Today, almost a month later, let me look at, uh, I'm actually going to look at the value as I'm talking here. Bitcoin Cash ABC is worth $96 and Bitcoin Cash SV is worth $84. Combined, they're worth $180. It's a pretty steep decline since November 14th. It's even a percentage-wise worse than, uh, a lot worse than what Bitcoin itself declined. Not only that, but uh, they both seem on a race to the bottom. People aren't taking Bitcoin Cash seriously anymore. Before it had its believers that that was eventually going to take over 
and because it's it's more transactional because you know, many felt that was the future rather than bitcoin and when the hype about bitcoin itself died that uh, bitcoin cash would be the one taking over now bitcoin cash is very poorly regarded because of this split nobody wanted this split and now it's basically that two camps that are racing to the bottom in value so they're going down, down, down. At first, Bitcoin Cash ABC, the Roger Ver's version, was worth far more. It looked like they were the winner, but then that started to crash. Then SV actually uh, held value. Then that briefly passed ABC. Now ABC's a little bit ahead, but they're both way down from where they were at the time when they split, especially ABC. And overall, together, they're way down. So it's a disaster. So forget about the future of Bitcoin Cash. Bitcoin Cash is is not going to be the replacement. That's that's the final nail in its coffin. By the way, at the time of the tweet that Micon said the public's going to get wrecked on December 29th, 2017, Bitcoin Cash was worth $2800. It's worth 180 right now with those two combined. Mm mm-hmm. mm. So Micon, if he really left his crypto holdings in Bitcoin Cash, and if it's still there, he's lost well over 90% of his worth. So that's pretty harsh. Even uh, uh, to show you how harsh this is, if he had $10 million worth of Bitcoin Cash on December 29th, 2017, he'd have less than a million today. So I can tell you anybody who held a lot of cryptocurrency at the end of 2017 and still holds that same amount today, I don't mean value-wise, but I mean the amount, if you haven't sold it, you've lost your ass. You've, you've lost a fortune. Now, maybe this is a fortune you made in the first place. Maybe still overall in cryptocurrency, you're ahead. But you've lost back a lot of what you've made. I know people who are in that boat. I know people who had made millions of dollars in a short time investing in cryptocurrency in 2017 and have lost most of it back or lost all of it back. Because in some cases they... uh, would, would uh, keep buying more and more. They weren't just holding on to what they already had. So overall, they ended up being losers in cryptocurrency, even if they were still holding some coin that they got cheap. One thing I said before, you know, I haven't been very good at predicting where cryptocurrency was going. I'll admit that. I'll admit I made a lot of incorrect predictions. But one thing I was right about was my observation that, in general, when Bitcoin falls, so do the other cryptocurrencies. You don't see it very often where Bitcoin's getting its ass kicked in value and some other cryptocurrency is is firing up in value. You don't see that. Now, you'll see it sometimes where Bitcoin's going up and other 
cryptocurrencies known as altcoins are, are going up more. You saw that with Ethereum last year. But you don't see it where they're defying the general trend. If Bitcoin's losing, all the cryptos are losing. If Bitcoin's gaining, all the cryptos tend to be gaining. Except for some real fringe ones, which tend to be scams. The prevalence of altcoins out there, the fact that there's thousands of them now, is very bad. Because it makes nobody want to trust any particular cryptocurrency. And it makes people realize that anyone, I mean not anyone, but it's not that hard to create one and prop it up as the next big thing, when in reality it it doesn't have any kind of real value or practical utilization or future for that matter. And too many people were just creating their own cryptocurrencies rather than bothering trading the ones that already existed. And those that were trading the ones that already existed realized that if all someone has to do is create another one, where is the value really of the existing ones? What's so special about any existing cryptocurrency compared to the new ones that are made other than general acceptance by the public? So now we have a big mess. We have BitConnect, Dogecoin, Ripple, Ethereum, Litecoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash ABC, Bitcoin Cash SV, and so many others. How do you think the public would react to that? How do you think the public would feel about cryptocurrency seeing this whole mess? Do you think public would trust any of this? No. So this turned into a disorganized, scammy, snake oil salesman sort of potpourri of coin here that the average person is never going to trust or want to use. The enthusiasm is quickly waning. If it was just going to be Bitcoin then and, and everybody were to live and die on Bitcoin, then at least Bitcoin could just represent cryptocurrency by itself. And even if it were to be replaced one day, at least that's easier to get behind. Than now, now we have so many different coins everywhere, no one's going to take any of it seriously. No one's going to be excited about it anymore. People briefly got excited about some of these altcoins like Ethereum, like Ripple. But then they realized that those were more vulnerable to crashes even the Bitcoin was. And that really, when it comes down to it, none of these are special. There's nothing that separates any of these of why they should be the next big thing. Of why they should be the standard one day. So what's going to happen, and it looks like it is happening, what's going to happen is the shine is finally wearing off The cost of mining has become more than the public wants to pay for these coins, which makes the mining itself not worth it. The public isn't buying into the whole thing anymore. In fact, the public's getting scared. 
And a lot of the run-up in the first place was due to market manipulation. And that's not talked about very much, but that's also true. So I think we're going to see cryptos taking a dump throughout 2019 also. We may see some temporary run-ups when people remember what happened in the past and they'll they'll see the coin back they'll see like bitcoin back where they wish they had bought it years ago so if you have memory of having a bunch of bitcoin when they were 400 each back in march of 2017 and then you watched it uh, by the end of the year uh shoot up to uh you know 19,800 and you say to yourself I guess it wasn't 400 in March 2017, but March 2016. So then, you know, within a year and three quarters, it's up to 19,800. And it's it's almost 50 times what it was worth when you, you had it back in March 2016. But the problem was that you had sold it way back then. And you sat there wishing, wishing you had just held on and how much money you'd have if you just held on. And then you see it again at 400 and you go, oh, well, here's my chance. I get a do-over. I, I get to get back in at 400. Okay, cool. Okay, I'm ready for it to go back up, ready for it to hit uh, almost 20K again. Let's do it. So that may push the price up every time we get past one of those points where people go, wow, this is so cheap. I've got to buy it now. Benjamin's even aware of all this. Uh he told me that he's going to wait until Bitcoin falls to one cent each, and then he's going to buy up a ton of them, and then uh, wait till it goes way back up and, and make millions of dollars. <laughs> Even my eight-year-old son has a plan to get in on the ground level again. He said, when it gets down to one cent, I'm going to buy so many Bitcoin... So if an eight-year-old understands this, yes, we're going to see people buying in when they see it passing certain points, but it's not going to last. And eventually people are going to realize that it's not coming back. And that cryptocurrencies might be the future of e-commerce. But not the cryptocurrency we know. And I wouldn't advise buying in at this point, thinking, okay, well, this is another low point, but I bet if I buy in, it'll pop back to 6000 soon enough and I'll double my money. No. I, I mean, it could, but I – and I've been wrong before, yes. But I, I think this time it's really in big trouble. I think they've – I think the, the last hurrah has been squeezed out of it in this – current iteration of cryptocurrencies. By the way, there's a lot of poker players who lost their ass in 2018 thanks to this. In their defense, a lot of them lost money they made in 2017. But still, there were some who would cash large tournaments and just put it all into crypto. 
And they must have felt so smart at the end of last year. They probably don't feel that smart anymore. I know someone. Don't try to guess who it is. It's not anyone you guys really know. But I know someone who made $3 million in 2017 on crypto. And they lost uh, $2.7 million of it back in 2018 before finally giving up and cashing out. So they made $300,000. Here's the question. Would you want to be them? On one hand, they made $300,000, which is nice. On the other hand, they were up $3 million and let 90% of that slip away. And this was someone who $3 million was a pretty big deal to. This wasn't someone worth $100 million. This is someone where $3 million would have really been nice for them. They're, they're not broke. Even before the 300000 they made here, they weren't broke. But uh, this wasn't someone so rich that they can just shrug off the $3 million as a risk they took and they held on too long. But I've thought about it. I thought about, like, do I wish I did what they did and now I'm $300,000 or I would be 300000 richer than what I actually did was nothing with crypto in that time? Or uh, would living with the 90% loss from the peak be too hard to deal with? It's not too different than winning $3 million in poker and then chunking off 2.7 back before finally quitting the game. At that point, are you... What kind of state of mind are you in? You're disappointed, but overall, when you think about poker, is it something that very much upsets you that you had $3 million and tossed 90% of it away? Or, or say, hey, look, when the whole thing is said and done, I won $300,000. So I, I think it's kind of more of the former, the one where you're just really letting it get to you. I haven't asked the person how they feel about it because they, uh, I don't want to rub it in. But I know for me that would be very tough if that happened. Had I been doing the crypto investment, what I would have done was the, the half strategy is that whenever there was any kind of real appreciation I would have pulled half out and left half in. I know if I did that too often, I wouldn't be left with that much, but I'm talking about this huge run up. So at least we're, you know, at least then the whole thing could be over and I could say, hey, look, I, uh, I made this much and yet I'd have some still in the game. So if it kept going up, I wouldn't feel like a fool for pulling too early.
Well, that's it. Thank you for listening. We'll try to be back next week. Thank you, Trader Ruski, for joining us. And if you know of any kind of software that allows telephone calls in and you can make telephone calls out and you can have multiple people in the line at once, please let me know. I'm looking for something like that. And that doesn't have a per-minute charge because I'm a cheap Jew. I'm talking about something that's free or a flat rate that's reasonable. It's hard to find these days. Now, one other thing. I'm going to put out this request. Hopefully you guys have all stayed around to the end of the show. If, and I, I did this last year and other years, but uh, if you are going to be in Las Vegas and you have uh, a decent hotel room over New Year's, either you live in Vegas or you're going to be there, if you can get me a hotel room at a decent property, decent meaning like a mid-grade property or better, doesn't have to be the top, doesn't have to be great, but um, it can't be something that if people heard the name of the property, they go, oh, that's a shithole. Uh, I'm not trying to be like an ingrate here. I'm just saying that um, I, every year, you know, that I've been uh, to Vegas recently for New Year's, it's a few years I haven't, but uh, most of the years in the last uh, seven or so, I've... Uh, been in Vegas for New Year's and uh, and I've had my parents come there. So uh, I need a second room. And, uh, you know, there's, there's only a point to do this as far as I'm concerned if, if it's something that's, uh, you know, if both hotel rooms are decent. Uh, I wouldn't want to put my parents in a crappy room nor would I want to stay in some crap room myself when you're there for New Year's. It just... Uh, it's just not worth it. I'd rather just stay home. But but if you do have that, uh, and you'd like to help me out here, uh, let me know. Or if you want to collect a token amount of money for it, I'm willing to do that. But obviously, I'm not going to pay anywhere near what it's worth, or I could I could just buy it myself. But if if you can help here, and you have a room from like. Uh, December 30th for a few days in Vegas, uh, please let me know. Because I'm having difficulty again getting a, a second room this year. And uh, last year, someone helped me out, and some previous years, someone helped me out. Uh, I've been able to manage it every year I've tried so far, but this year has been pretty challenging. So if, if you can help me, text me. Seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. So, it was a pretty long show, wasn't it? It felt longer than it was. It, it felt like a really long show. But I'm looking now, and the show was uh, about four and a half hours. It felt longer than that. I'll admit it. I'll try to come back next week and do another one. May not be as long. I had a lot of material to catch up on. There's a lot of different topics I wanted to talk about this time. 
maybe next week we can have the return of Calwatt. I know he really wants to come back. He's just very, very tired today and couldn't do it. Thanks always to Trinaruski for being here with me for the hours that he could be here. He did warn me beforehand that he may not be able to make it for more than a few hours. So he had to bail out, and I finished it up. Brandon Drexel Gerson may reappear at some point. You never know. And, you know, I'm not better. So don't don't send me texts saying, oh, I'm glad you're better. I'm glad you're past all this. No, I'm not. I'm not past very much at all. I just, I just said, look, I, I can't stop this anymore. I, I, I want to return to the things that I was doing before. So I'm going to look and see if this is something I can still do. I'll do it. So I'm betting sports again. I'm playing poker again. I'm doing radio again. But I've still got issues. Not a day goes by that I don't wish that I could be back in July of 2018 or beforehand and just feel normal. Just go to bed and feel normal. Fall asleep easily. Never feel anxiety or depression or a pain in my stomach, which I think is an ulcer. I miss those days, as I'm sure everybody does when they discover they have some health problem they didn't have before. And you look and you neglect, you realize you neglected the time when you were healthy, and you wish for it to come back. That's what I have every day, and hopefully one day that'll change. Good night. Shalom. Shalom.